Welcome to Parallel Quest, a podcast where two friends talk about the stories we love and share our personal stories of the impact they've had on our lives. I'm one of your hosts, Cody Haggard, and alongside, or maybe more accurately said, across the internet from me, my great friend, co-host, and sauce conspirator, Zach Butler. Zach, how are you doing today? Good, man. I'm, I'm knee... I'm going to say I'm knee-deep in the conspiracies. Knee, All right? I'm knee-deep knee right now, man. Sauce. I've been... Conspiracy. This is... Conspiracies in general. I'm a huge fan of conspiracies. Okay. I'm a huge They're fan of the... Just, you know, the creativity, the, the playful creativity of your mind yeah. it, with a conspiracy Absolutely. theory. That's how far I like to take them. I don't like to be the guy in my basement or, I guess, in my office clicking away trying to figure out you know like lizard people are taking over washington Mm. like as a as a fun (laughs) experiment with my mind yes as a serious thing no yeah but dude i gotta tell you so recently there's been all these like ufo sightings and i'm a huge fan of aliens Mm. and space and especially ufos uh it just fascinates yeah. me. It fascinates me where all that can lead. I mean, most of the time it's just, oh, military's trying out new things and we didn't know they were trying out new things. Right. But I like the alternative. All right, man. Yeah, I like yeah. the alternative. And so anyways, it got me thinking. So right now at Chick-fil-A, we are in a sauce shortage. Okay. I don't know if you've ever if you've been to a Chick-fil-A in the past three weeks but it's been a while since i've been i had a craving for it on sunday though <laughs> that's usually it, it when it just come. comes up it like pops up on on sundays you're like you know what sounds real good for lunch right now chick-fil-a and you're like ah oh, shoot oh man bummer yep. yep that's when we like to get you yeah. getting you ready for monday man as we like to say monday's coming mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. in, in the chick-fil-a world okay. yeah so um anyway so we we have this saw shortage and the world is, you know, has a shortage of everything right now. It seems, um, wood is, you know, a million dollars for a two by four because we have a wood shortage or a lumber shortage. And, um, you know, pick any commodity. And for some reason we have a a shortage of it right now. So we have a saw shortage. So that means we can only give out so many sauces, Mm -hmm. And Chick-fil-A insider information, I mean, this isn't like classified, but basically they're only giving every store an allotted amount of of sauce. Like we're getting rations right now. They're like, here is how many Chick-fil-A sauces you're allowed to have. Here are how many ranch sauces. Here's how many Polynesian. That's all you get for right now. And you got to make it last. Well, as you could probably figure from a consumer standpoint, you're not happy. Yeah. If you're a guy coming through and you're like, I am used to having 17 Chick-fil-A sauces for my medium fry. Yeah, absolutely. I want you 17. Want and we were all over the fries. Listen, we were happy to do that back in the day. We wanted you to have 17 Chick-fil-A sauces. Okay. That is something that is built into our cost in running an operation. You can take as much as you want. It doesn't matter. So it's, it's, it's kind of irked the the chick-fil-a world or at least the consumer part as we get it yeah but something i've noticed man this is where my conspiracy comes in 
Chick-fil-A has now rolled out into Giant Eagle, into Walmart, into Target, big, big name grocery stores where people can purchase things for general, maybe, maybe not Giant Eagle, but at Walmart and Target for sure. You can purchase things usually for a lower price okay. yeah. um, at those stores compared to, you know, Giant Eagle. But what I noticed is they're rolling out our eight ounce sauce bottles. So they're usually run you two ninety nine to like three ninety nine. If you come to the store, it's like two fifty. So it's not like that much lower at our store. But it's something that I couldn't. I saw that today because someone sent me a picture and they're like, "Hey, your Chick Fil A sauce is at Giant Eagle now." Okay. I was like, "Huh, that's interesting because." That wasn't there, you know, a month ago. But now that we have a such chick or giant eagle now has eight ounce bottles hmm. and Walmart now has eight ounce bottles and Target now has eight ounce bottles. OK. Or in the middle of a soft shortage. So so my conspiracy, man, this is like my Starbucks conspiracy a okay. few months yeah, back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was a good one. Yeah. So my new conspiracy, <laughs> man, is we're saying we have a sauce shortage because we want you guys to go get our eight ounce bottles, which cost a, a lot more because sauces are free at Chick-fil-A. Mm, that's true. Than our sauces. So mm. it's not a groundbreaking conspiracy, but and it's it's it makes Chick-fil-A sound a little, you know, greedy. But yeah, yeah, a little bit, you know, a little bit company that that has such a good reputation for being so kind and generous and giving but which we still are yeah absolutely absolutely but here's what i would say how i think it in some ways doesn't make a ton of sense because listen say for example i make bomb fried chicken at home right say for Mm -hmm. example i do i'm not saying i do i have no idea how to make fried chicken so but it's like, hey, I make great fried chicken. But the reason I go to Chick-fil-A is because I love to get my chicken tenders, dip them into the sauce, it, it get the whole experience. But if I can get the experience at home, I'll make my chicken and just use Chick-fil-A sauce. So in a way, Chick-fil-A is potentially pushing away customers because... If Chick-fil-A is the only place you can get Chick-fil-A sauce, then you got to go in the store to get it. But if you can get your sauce outside of the store, it's like, well, you know, I could I could feed my whole entire family for a lot less if I get the chicken from the store, bread it up a little bit. Maybe it won't be as good, but hey, we still got the sauce, so it'll taste like Chick-fil-A. Mm-hmm. I don't know, man. That's kind of my thoughts. I'm like, maybe it's not the best decision for, for the old yeah, Chick-fil-A to be putting I... their sauce in the store. I, I remember when they rumored this was I think it's probably before the pandemic. It's funny how we measure time yeah, like right. that now. Well, like before pandemic. Pre-pandemic. It's pre-pandemic. Like, yeah, before pandemic. <laughs> yeah, like it's just so weird that that'll now be for for at least the next few years. Yeah, at how least I measure the next, time. Like, five years, yeah. Yeah. Um, but I remember when they sent everybody that message of like this is what we're doing with our eight ounce sauces we're going to come out with eight ounce sauces we are testing them in certain areas but soon it's going to be nationwide i remember there was this huge uproar in the chick-fil-a community and by up i mean it wasn't more calling our store or whatever it was like more 
online. I, I belong to a bunch of Chick-fil-A Facebook pages because I'm a nerd and yeah. I like reading them. Yeah. And like people were just like, we are we're giving away our sauce. We're charging people for sauces. Like, why not just come to the store and get it for free? Like, I mean, kind of what you're saying, like we're yeah. going to push customers away. They're not going to come to the store. Like people are going to replicate it. What if McDonald's comes out with chicken sauce and it tastes yeah. exactly the same? And it's just like, or what if they just stuff. go buy it, go buy it. Right. They just, it just, they don't even have to, they don't, they don't even have to come up with their sauce. They just go it's, buy it. Right. It's just and just sitting like, on the table table at mcdonald's just chick-fil-a sauce i mean the ingredients the ingredients by law have to be on the nutrition facts they're right there. so exactly. so they're just like all right it's this this mix of things just do a few experiments we'll get there eventually you know exactly man so McChicken i mean sauce i remember that was going around mcchicken sauce like all this all the conspiracy theory off of that yeah went out and we're in the the chick-fil-a sphere for a while but now it's been out for about two years or I mean, now it's becoming more mainstream now. So yeah. um, you you probably will see Chick-fil-A sauce in, you know, Walmart or I, I can't imagine like Aldi or anything would have that. But kind of the mainstream grocery stores will have it. But it's it's just right now. It's just so interesting yeah. that we're launching this eight ounce Chick-fil-A sauce bottle in into all the and shortage. I don't really understand in a shortage and I don't really understand why we yeah. have a shortage like that wasn't really I think they're saying like our distribution centers and all this stuff are you know backed up and yeah. like there's certain like the company that makes our sauces makes sauces for a bunch of different companies and then like they're shorthanded so like just now everyone's shorthanded so I don't know if you go out and buy Hidden Valley Ranch if they're gonna have a shortage of Hidden Valley Ranch because it's made by the same company, maybe. But I don't see Hidden Valley Ranch also, you know, going, hey, we have a 25-ounce bottle now yeah, right, instead right. of <laughs> whatever ounce bottle we have. So it's just that that's my conspiracy. I know it's not as groundbreaking as my Starbucks conspiracy, but I'm always on the lookout for this kind of I'm gonna thing. I'm going to throw something else out about Chick-fil-A for you and, and let you know, and just let you know my thoughts here. Now... This reminds me back in the day. Remember when you wanted so bad to get that buttermilk chicken sandwich from McDonald's? Remember that? It was a late night McDonald's yeah. run. It was Gen Con. Yeah. And you just wanted that buttermilk <laughs> chicken. And I think I think you had just started your job at Chick-fil-A. And in the back of my head, I'm yeah. like, he probably just wanted to know what his competitors you know, were like. <laughs> and, and so... Uh, ultimately, that chicken sandwich it under it under delivered, right? You, you know, I I don't think you got it that night, but eventually, I think you got one. And, the whole experience <laughs> under delivered. Let's just be honest. And it under delivered. All right. So, <laughs> anyway, I've noticed that a lot of a lot of the fast food places are trying to copy Chick Fil A. Right? McDonald's has their mm-hmm. version of Chick Fil A sandwiches. You know, they got the traditional and the spicy. I tried it. You know, just to check it out. It doesn't deliver. And then I was going through Burger King the other day. And I don't really like Burger King that much. I'm not a huge fan. Like, there's... And my kids, for some reason, we were driving by. They're like, Dad, can we go to Burger King? And I was like, I I guess, guys. I mean, I, I guess it saves me from having to make lunch this afternoon. And so, anyway go through Burger King, and I see they're trying to imitate Chick-fil-A with their chicken sandwich. And, and I'm like, all right, well, you know, their original chicken sandwich isn't too bad, so, you know, maybe maybe it's okay. 
And so I yeah. get this chicken sandwich. Dude, it was surprisingly delicious. I was like... Like pretty good? It's pretty wow. good, man. I was shocked. I was like, Burger King? What? What in the world is this? Like... Totally, you know, like when you just have no expectations of something and then you're just blown <laughs> yeah. away because it was like, wait a minute, you might just be average. But the fact that you got there yeah. is shocking to me. It's, it's beyond and, what I thought you could have ever accomplished. It's less like Chick-fil-A's sandwich. It's less like Chick-fil-A's chicken sandwich and a little bit more like Popeye's chicken sandwich. I don't know if you okay. I don't know if you got yeah, in on the yeah. Popeye's craze, but oh, like believe me. I, I knew about the whole Popeye war. But, People are coming up to and telling me at times in the store, like, hey, just want you to know. Your chicken's way better than Popeye's. Okay, hey, thanks for letting I mean, me. Popeye's okay. chicken sandwich is pretty good. It's the fact the problem yeah, is the ex- the experience it. It of good. going to a Popeye's is terrible. Like they they <laughs> consistently across the board at every single one of their restaurants have the worst customer service on the planet. Like you can go to a Popeye's yeah. chicken, there's two people in the drive-through line, you'll be there for a half an hour. So if anyone <laughs> from Popeye's corporate is listening to this, fix your problem. Your restaurant has <laughs> no, great yeah. food. You just got to get it to the customer. Just like, get the just, people. Yeah, get the people you know, in there I mean, and fix that. I don't know. I don't know yeah. why, but that's just always been the way with Popeyes. Ever since I've gone there, I've, I've gone there. You know, I think the first time I went to a Popeyes, I was like a freshman in college, and I always liked it, but never had a great experience. The food's always okay, but it just takes yeah. forever to get there. Anyway, I just wanted to let you know we were talking about Chick-fil-A, and I was thinking about that. Like, Burger King, I think just because it's Burger King, yeah. that chicken sandwich isn't going to pan out for him because, I mean, at the end of the day, it's Burger King. Um, but, man, it is maybe the best-kept secret in, in fast food right now. Uh, I know they're marketing it a lot and stuff, but, hey. I'll have to try that. I, mean, I don't even know where the nearest Burger it, King is. I can't even tell you the last time I was at a Burger King. Get over there and try it, and then, you know, do some R&D of, like, you know, how could we make sure Burger King doesn't kill our sandwich, right? I don't think that'll happen. But, yeah. You know, I'm just letting you know. Yeah. Not it too was, worried. It was Not pretty good. About Burger King. But um, more exciting than a Burger King chicken sandwich is the fact that recently in my life, an old hobby has resurrected anew. It It is, <sighs> it, 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 I'm turning a corner in life where it's starting to be a little less crazy. Like my life is, is still pretty crazy, right? I still have a lot of little ones here. And I'm sure listeners have heard my kids making all sorts of noise in the background in the past. I stopped trying to edit it out quite a while ago. Um, <laughs> other than like the obvious interruptions where it's like, all right, we have like dead air for a while. Yeah. But the, <laughs> the exciting thing that's happened in life is, is over the weekend, my wife and I sat down and we played a two we played a board game just the two of us for the first time in probably over a year. Like I've played some nice. board games throughout the years. Like I've gotten together with my brothers over the last year or like one time and then my mom we've gone over there a couple times. But my wife and I we used to play a game at least a couple times a week. It was just kind of a way we spent mm. time with each other. And just, it, it got to a point where, you know, the kids were really demanding, and then by the time you get them in bed, you're just exhausted. Yeah. But we're at a point in life now where we can kind of get them in bed and get them doing their nighttime routine, and even if they interrupt us or whatever, we can, I can honestly say I have no problem telling my kids, like, hey, this is mom and dad time. Mom and dad need to have time mm. together, too, and they understand, you know? So... 
got to play a couple games of Azul. We played uh, Agricola, and we tried. Wow, you played a yeah, lot of we games. Did. We man. did a couple over the last uh, over the last week or so. We kind of tried to do it a couple times. Uh, we even played a two-player game of Catan. I do not recommend if anybody's a board gamer out there and you like Catan, don't even bother with the the Catan two-player version. <laughs> it's pathetic. Like it is not. Good. I can't even play Catan. I can't even play it anymore, man, because it's just been not the two-player, just yeah. Catan in general, because it's just been like too many faults too many <laughs> too friendships many, almost too ruined many tables uh, <laughs> too many yeah you know to be honest Just, though i still like the mechanic of interaction in trading with people in the game there's if anyone knows board games and knows a game that does like the mechanic of trading and exchanging mm-hmm. goods and negotiating if there's a game out there that does it well send it my way cuz i'm looking for something to take that element of gaming in so that I can have it, and so that I never have to play Catan again. Um, <laughs> yeah. Hey, Klaus Tuber, if you're out there listening to this, I loved your game years ago, and I like a lot of the expansions. Unfortunately, a lot of people don't want to learn the expansions, right? Like uh, of of mm. Catan. Anyway, I'm I'm talking about a lot of stuff that that some people have no context for with board games. But anyway, I'm a board game nerd. I love them, and I haven't played a lot in a long time, so I got a chance to jump back into them. What about you, man? What's the last time you sat down and like got a good board game? That's awesome, man. Session in. Zach is like <laughs> so actually okay. So it's here. I know I was like in and out. Yeah, we're having we're having storms here in PA, man. Okay. So I don't okay. know what's going on outside the house. So, um. If my internet goes down a little bit, sorry. Um, but I do. So actually, it's funny you say this because the last couple nights, it's not been a board game, mm-hmm. but I've been playing a lot of Lord of the Rings, the card game on Octagon, like we yes. used to do back yes. in the day, baby. Yes. So I've been going through it. I've been going through one of the cycles, the the core set. I didn't do Escape from Dogledore because that's freaking impossible yeah, sure. but yeah wasted time skip that started going through the whole search for Gollum. just beat that one last night i was gonna play a little bit of conflict at the Carrick today oh, but didn't one. get to I it but dude i've been getting back into it mainly because i introduced it to a friend of mine at work and we played it the other month and i remember i was sat down to explain it to him and we were playing i gave him a super beefed up deck and because i only have one core set Mm -hmm. and so i played or gave him a real beefed up deck and i played and i just remember playing it i was like man i forgot how much i love this game it was like the first time i played it in forever and i was like this game is a ton of so good it's insanely good yeah so I downloaded everything, got everything going on Octagon. So I've been I've been going pretty hard into that, man. I kind of want to go through all of it. And then once my I think my game shop down the streets open, I kind of want to start collecting yeah. again, man. I kind of I, I want to get some of those expansion yeah. packs, some of those booster packs yeah, and get what you can everything. now. Because, I mean, fantasy flights printing is worse than it's ever been. So, yeah, get what you can. Yeah. Now. So. I'm uh I I so yeah the last couple days man I've been I've been playing Lord of the Rings the card game pretty hardcore makes me so happy like yeah yeah so I haven't I but other than that I can't remember the last time I played a board game it might have been like um 
Uh, what's that train train game? I have it. Uh, Ticket to Ride. Um, yeah, I played that with Leah, and that, like, that's the one you got heated over. My, well, <laughs> yeah, yeah, you got yeah. all heated. <laughs> yeah, that's 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 kind of a trademark of mine with board games. Uh. I get real heated, <laughs> but yeah, that I think that was the last time I played a board game. It's just yeah, I mean, it's time anymore, man. I mean. I don't really have an excuse. You have three kids. I don't I have one on the way, but like yeah. life is generally the same in terms of sure. time right now. So um but yeah, man, I miss I miss our board game sessions like coming out and playing at uh your when we played uh oh, what was it at your uh board game shop, the um Attack on Dogledore, yes. I think yeah. is it. Attack on yeah. Dogle Door, like one of my favorite, yeah, one of my favorite board games. Very enemies. hard, very hard scenario. Oh man, we'll have to, yeah. we'll have to like have a special episode of Parallel Quest one time where we just talk about board games. Um, oh, that yeah. would be so Absolutely. fun, and maybe tell the story of how back in the day we thought we were going to be board game podcasters. Um, <laughs> and I say this somewhat serious: if we would have started back then, we actually probably could have had a decent audience. Because yeah, because the market was small, and now that I, I've noticed, there's a bunch of people in the board gaming, you know, content creation that weren't there before, and it's like, oh man, maybe we yeah. should have stuck with it. <laughs> but it was an idea, I know. Oh well. But anyway, hey, uh, we got to move on. We got we got Return of the King to talk about here. Uh, but before we get into that, just some Steel Lake Studio news for you guys. I'm gonna hand it over to Zach to kind of talk to you guys about Terror Town, the newsletter. Get on the email list. It's in the link of it's in the link of this podcast, the show notes, the video description on YouTube. If you want to get on our email list, we we love that. Uh, I'm actually going to be writing up something for the newsletter. The next one we're going to be sending out, uh, and I'm going to send it to nice. Zach. So I'll have something in the newsletter. You'll hear you'll hear from Cody. I, I couldn't roll that off the tongue uh, in, <laughs> in this next one. So Zach, give us some news. All right, quickly. You know, Terror Town, for those who've been longtime listeners of the show, it's my middle grade uh, suspense thriller. You might have noticed I've changed the wording a little bit. Um, that seems to be, you know, more, I'll just say it, marketable. Um, it appeals to more people. But it's a middle grade suspense thriller series um, that I've been working on. There are two books out right now. There's Nightmare at the Fair and Something Strange at Grandma's House. You can get those on Kindle right now over at Amazon. Um, just to keep you guys updated, I know I said I would have physical copies by the end of this month. Well, true to an author's promises, that will not be happening. Um, <laughs> they will probably be next month. Just my my um, book designer, the guy who does my covers, he has also a full-time design job as well. So we're trying to balance both of our full-time lives with yeah. our part-time, you know, passions. And so he's been trying to help me out, but he can only really do it on the weekends. Sure. Long story short, um, next yeah. month, next but it'll month, still be out before the winds of winter. Out. It's still, I <laughs> do, unless something happens in the next, 30 days with George R. R. Martin. It should be out before the winds of winter. That will be my timeline. <laughs> you know, so anytime we have to anytime we have to push a date back until the winds of winter comes out, if we have to announce it, like yeah. it's gonna be moved, but we promise it'll still be out before the winds yes. of winter. <laughs> yes. So, you know, I feel more like an author just moving these dates around. So this is this is actually good for me. Um 
but yeah, so the physical copies of the first two books will be out next month. I'm sorry for everyone who was really excited about that. I was too. It's nobody's fault. It's just, you know, life and time. Um, talk about our newsletter real quickly. If you guys want to stay up to date with all the Steel Lake Studio news and books and podcasts and everything we're going on, head on over to steellakestudio.com, click the community tab, sign up for our email. If it's your first time to the website, you'll see a little thing pop up. Just sign up right there. Give us your email. We don't sell it to anybody. We don't give it to Facebook. We don't do any of that crazy stuff. It's just for us to stay in contact with you guys, talk with you guys. It's also a way for you guys to ask us questions, stay in contact with us. So head on over there, get on the newsletter, stay up to date with everything we are doing. Yeah. Awesome, guys. Yeah, head over there, steellakestudio.com. And, you know, just it, while you're over there, go to the community tab and just send us something. Send us something we can read on the podcast, and we'll read it. I don't care if it's poetry. <laughs> it could be a short story. You could be making fun of one of our voices or whatever it might be. Just write us a little love letter or a hate letter, whatever it is, whatever your passion is, <laughs> fill it out. We'd love to read it on the show. I would and love a hate letter. I would I would love a I would love a segment on the show where we just read random things that people write in the community tab. Uh, yeah. That would make my day. <laughs> that would be fantastic. All right. Our fun segment of the day is called Satisfaction Not Guaranteed. So here's the reality. When we embark on fictional journeys. I think a lot of times we are are hoping that they satisfy us. There's some type of good payoff in the way that a story ends. In fact, I would say that that's the reason why we tell stories in the first place, is we start with the end in mind of some type of message or theme that we want to portray and a journey that we want to to be fulfilled and then we take a reader a watcher a listener on that journey and we want them to feel satisfaction and and how the story ended in the way that the characters went the decisions that they made how they all affected how everything ends up when you get to the final page or the final scene or the credits roll but satisfaction is not guaranteed because sometimes there is a idea that a storyteller has that just didn't connect to how the story ended, right? They, they might have not set it up the proper way. Other times, like with television series, the end was never really planned from the beginning. Or maybe the ending that was planned from the beginning didn't really fit with how the show evolved. Or with long series of books, when you're on book number 12, you're a much different person than you were on book number one. And maybe you just didn't deliver in the end. Who knows what it might be, but satisfaction is not guaranteed. So... We are going to talk about here a story that has a good ending and a story that has a not-so-good ending. I'm not going to say bad, because here's the reality. Ending a story's tough. Ending a movie's tough. Ending a book is tough. And even ending like a sermon is tough, which my background in preaching or a speech or anything like that, a conclusion is always the mm. hardest part because it's also your most important part because that's going to be the last thing that the person you were speaking with, telling the story to, was watching, is going to think about your work when it's all said and done. So mm. we are each going to give an example of a good and a not so good ending of a book, movie, or series. And Zach's picture here on the podcast keeps going all over so for those of you <laughs> watching on youtube i don't know why this is happening but it it'll readjust itself back to normal <laughs> just know that zach is still here uh but i will uh, have you actually zach i'm gonna go ahead and go first and we'll wait for your visuals to get back to normal yeah, um, yeah. but i'm going to give an example of a good ending to a story 
and give some context as to why I think it's a good ending. But I think a good ending to a story is the movie Inception. Now, mm. the fact that the movie ends, in spoilers for Inception, uh, by the way, <laughs> yeah, the, the movie job. ends with Cobb spinning his top on the table, which is right his point of reference. He spins the top. If the top stops spinning, he knows that he is in the real world. If it keeps spinning, mm-hmm. then he is in a dream. And so that was set up earlier in the story. And so the final scene that we see and Christopher Nolan is so good at making you want to go back and watch his movies again. That is like what Christopher Nolan does, right? He makes a film, he lets you enjoy the ride, gives you a somewhat mm. non-conclusive ending, and you're like, wait a minute, wait a minute, did I miss something? And you go back and you ride it again, right? He is the master yeah. at that. Um And so I think that Inception has such a solid ending because I have never in my whole entire life had more debate over what was going to happen next over a film than Inception. Like, this Mm -hmm. was a conversation piece on the college dorm for no less than, like, eight months after this movie came out. (laughs) Like, there was a particular friend who we both were would change our theories. Like sometimes I was a dreamer. Sometimes I was a reality. And then sometimes he would flip flop. Right. But we were never on the same page. (laughs) We just, and I think part of it was, we just like to argue over the movie. And so the reason why I think inception is such a good ending is, is it works really well for a movie. If Mm. a book ended like Inception does, there's really not a lot of payoff at the end, and most people aren't willing to go back and read however long that story was. Like, obviously, you can reflect on it, but Inception is just one of those movies, like, it has to be seen in order to really appreciate what that movie does. Um, So, and, and I think it works to be able to go back, okay, I could watch it again at some point. Um, and I think it just really works for causing discussion. And I don't think all ambiguous endings are good. And in fact, I think ambiguous endings more often than not are bad um, mm. because it feels lazy. And the reason why you want to tell a story is this is a huge highlight in this character's life you've decided to tell a story about. And there needs to be some meaningful conclusion in this journey. To give an ambiguous end oftentimes feels like, wait a minute, so... What yeah. changed about him? Where did they really go? How did this pay him off in the end? Like, mm. y- you know, <clears throat> yeah, I think yeah. I think either you know the character gets what they want, or they didn't, or they live, or they die, or whatever. Give some type of clear conclusion. But Inception mm. has more of an ambiguous ending, and it's one of the ones that I like. So, Zach, how about you, man? What's your first good ending to a story? Yeah. Ah, oh, dude, Inception. That's a, that was a good one. Um, all right, so mine. I'm gonna go with the Return of the Jedi, man. This mm. and, and I want to say I want to preface this by saying that I know there's three more movies before this or after this, but I think of the original <clears throat> series. I think this is a very satisfactory ending. I think this is a very good ending because you see redemption on multiple parts. And at one, at some level, Star Wars is a story of redemption. You see Anakin. Arguably, this is the this is the end of Anakin's plot mm-hmm. arc. Yeah. I mean, if you want to go back to Phantom Menace, <clears throat> like the story is about Anakin up until Return yeah. of the Jedi. 
and you finally see the culmination of like his fall and his rise in like his his eventual redemption in this mm-hmm. movie. And so I think first of all, that's a good plot arc. Um, I think if you enjoy Darth Vader, um, you enjoy him anyways through a new hope to return of the Jedi, but it makes it even more impactful, even though I know the first three movies are terrible. It still makes it more impactful when you see where he came from to, you know, spoiler if you haven't seen Star Wars, but how he dies in um, Return of the Jedi. So first, I think that's that's a a, a really satisfying ending. Um, Second, I like you kind of knew the the rebels were going to win just based on the fact that this was the hero's journey, like Mm -hmm. the hero's journey ends with the hero returning home and being changed. And so you kind of knew Anakin and basically you knew Anakin was going to survive. Maybe yeah. probably Han because he was a f- fan favorite and Chewie because he was a fan favorite and Leia because she was a fan favorite. So, I mean, the main cast is probably going to survive. But there was still something about seeing the culmination of the main characters, Luke Skywalker. You saw his like change. You saw him go from this whiny, um, probably abrasive, naive kid in the first New Hope movie, and you see him mature. And you see him in Return of the Jedi as a Jedi should be acting. He's real cool, under pressure. He doesn't let his emotions always get in the way of himself. He's actually saying wise things. Um so I I always enjoyed for me the Return of the Jedi's plot arc with Luke Skywalker because yeah. you got to see him mature and that's part of a good ending and I think that's why Inception is one of those movies where it's like it teeters on that edge because you want to know that your character has changed you want to know that he's come full circle but he's learned something but if you're gonna leave it open ended and ambiguous it's like you, some you can kind of lose the audience on that because they yeah, can go well sure. did he learn anything. In the yeah, end, did right. he actually changed. But in Return of the Jedi, Luke has clearly changed and he's changed for the better. He's become who he's meant to be. And so for me, Return of the Jedi, I like stories where it's like characters become who they were meant to be, even though they didn't really know what they were supposed to be yeah. at the beginning. Um, they Luke, all he wanted to do was just go and like fly around in a spaceship and in space and yeah fight not really fighting battles he just wanted yeah. to get out of tatooine honestly yeah. that was his goal and he becomes a jedi like that's mm-hmm. awesome that's a great ending absolutely so so for me that return of the jedi that's a good ending yeah and i actually had return of the jedi on my list of of good and then i was like you know what i have a feeling zach might want to talk about this so i took it <laughs> off for you i appreciate um, it man and, and I do, I think Return of the Jedi is one of those movies, you go into it fully expecting the good guys are going to win, but it's the execution and how everybody's story arc, you know, not everything goes exactly how you expected it to go, right? Like, there are still uh, twists, turns, and surprises along the way, but it's the fact that mm-hmm. the plane has landed in a satisfying way that really makes it, you know, good. It re- That's what really makes it important, and... And I think we even have a similar thing with Return of the uh, with uh, Return of the King, um, which yeah. we'll talk about here in a few minutes. But before we talk about 
a yeah uh a, a our whole entire main topic i just froze there for a second i have to go talk about a not good ending and <laughs> this and i'm actually going to stick within the realm of ambiguous endings because the reason why i think I didn't mention why it also works for Inception being an ambiguous ending because it doesn't really matter. It doesn't matter if Cobb is dreaming or not because in the end, he's still happy. He's still with Mm -hmm. his kids. And whether it's dream or reality, that's ultimately what he wanted. He wanted freedom from being tormented by the ghost of his past, his wife, his dead wife. And he attained freedom from that. And yeah. essentially, he gets a happy ending. It, it's kind of dark to think like, oh, man, he's just stuck in a dream forever. He's not even really with his kids. But he thinks he is, right? Mm-hmm. Um, kind of like the whole are we living in a simulation type of thing, but are we living in a dream? Uh, yeah. So far as not good endings, it's a film that I did not like. I saw this movie in the theater. Haas and I went when we were dating. It is the movie. And I know there's quite a few people who like this movie. The Grey. Have you seen this movie? With Liam Neeson. And they're hunting. I have not. I don't even know this movie. So it's called The Grey. It's a movie where these guys, I can't even remember why they're going to Alaska in the first place. I I don't remember why. But essentially it's a survival film. Their plane crashes in the middle of like Arctic Alaska and they are okay. basically trying to survive the wilderness and get to uh, some type of base or something. And they're they're I can't even remember. They're not really military guys, but Liam Neeson. He's like a he's like an ex military you know, like mercenary type of character. And so essentially, it's the journey of all these guys who are all broken. They're all tattered they're all you know have dark past issues whatever and Liam Neeson's kind of wrestling with some of that stuff himself Mm. and there is a pack of wolves that is hunting them and so essentially the story is like is this group of guys going to escape this pack of wolves that's hunting them spoilers for the gray by the way if you want to go out and watch go ahead I don't recommend it Um, (laughs) but but you know, and so the film, it starts off and it's kind of got some good thriller aspects of it. But man, these wolves, they really like, they really are viciously killing people. It starts to get kind of gory. And I'm like, okay, well, this isn't typically my kind of movie. So we're kind of going the horror route. I didn't know that this is what this was. And so I was fine with it. But like, so everyone's starting to die, right? And and then there's this scene in there where the one guy, he's starting to hallucinate. I don't know if he's, you know, it's from nearly freezing to death or whatever. He's starting to hallucinate. And and this scene just still to this day just like bothers me. (laughs) And he's like on the ground, he's exhausted and he's hallucinating and he's having a vision of like his daughter coming over to him and like giving him a hug. And, you know, he's hallucinating his daughter's face and like her hair it's kind of coming down, and then it kind of fades. There's like a crossfade, and the, it's not really his daughter. He's hallucinating this. It's really the wolf, and the wolf like I eats was him alive. Say, and and I'm like, oh, come wolf. on. <laughs> Gosh, this is disgusting. <laughs> and so anyway, I, I like get through this whole movie. Not my type of movie whatsoever. And, and then the climax is actually pretty good. It's like this hunt between 
Liam Neeson in the Alpha Wolf. And it's like, okay, this is kind of getting interesting, right? Like, how is he going to outsmart this Alpha Wolf, this gigantic black wolf? And so, first of all, you never see the Alpha Wolf, which is frustrating. It's like, okay, I understand, like, holding it back. I love that in, in like, scary okay. movies when you hold back the monster. Yeah. But the fact that you never see, by the time the movie ends, you've never seen this thing in, like, its fullness. You've seen, like, a quick shot of it, like, right before the movie ends, and that is it. And it's, it's a pretty big wolf. But anyway, so you think you're, you're, you're at the, the end point of this movie, you're about to see Liam Neeson. He's got he's he's just about to like bare fist, like knives in his hand, just go at it with this wolf. And who's gonna conquer at the end? And you're ready for it. He's walking towards the wolf, cut the black. <laughs> the movie just what? cuts the black, and then you know there is, and then oh. it, it cuts back. It cuts back. The movie comes back on, screens back oh, on. Okay, okay. And all you see is like Liam Neeson's character like laying on the ground and then the wolf laying on the ground and you can slightly see that the wolf is laying on the ground just like breathing slowly. And there's like, you know, broken glass and blood and stuff everywhere and that's it. And then the movie's over. And <laughs> it's like, that's, that was the, that was I mean, the end of the movie. Shoot. And, I, and I know there's some people who really kind of argued from a critical perspective that this was a great journey of like, you know, how he overcame his brokenness through this and this is ultimately the end. And it's like, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. I don't care if he died. Like, if he died, that could have been a good ending. But at least let me know. Like, let me know. Is he dead? Is the wolf dead? Like, did he live? Like, why did yeah what happened what happened like it's just so ambiguous and this is an example of an ambiguous ending oh. that doesn't work because of the reality that there's only one answer and you can't you can't deduce i mean not that there's there's one of two answers right he's either dead or he's alive right but you can't deduce yeah. Yeah, based yeah. on anything you've watched for the last 2 hours what happened there's nothing in the movie leading up that could help you get to that point. Whereas with yeah. Inception, it's like, okay, you can kind of theory craft, pay attention to certain things and figure out, you know, was Cobb dreaming or not and kind of come up with your ideas. And I think there's th things throughout the movie that could prove either or, either he's dreaming or he's not. Yeah. But he's either dead or he's alive and there's nothing in the film that you could go back on to prove it. It's not like a, a psychological right. change. It's nothing that you could watch the movie over again and really deduce what happens. It's just like they decided to make this ambiguous ending, and it's over, and oh. you get out of it what you want. And for me, it's like, I hate that stuff. I hate that stuff. I would be so mad if that movie ended. I mean, I am, I'm mad now just, <laughs> just thinking about it, talking <laughs> to you about it. Yeah, but like, I mean, that that right there to me is an example of like the writers had a great concept, had an interesting plot, but had no idea how they wanted to yeah, end sure. it. Yeah, sure. I think it was one of those ideas where you, you like there's two types of stories. There's this type of story where you think of a really cool idea or a really cool plot and it comes mm -hmm. to you. Like um, let's take Andy Weir's uh, Ready Player okay. One. What if Willy Wonka met the yeah. Matrix? That's a right there. Ernest Klein. I, by I'm the way. interested. Or Ernest Klein. Sorry, Andy Weir wrote yeah. The Martian. Sorry. Um, 
I always get those two confused. Um, but yeah, so Ernest Klein writes, you know, Willy Wonka meets yep. the Matrix. That's cool. A whole world within some computer system and like th- there's a scavenger right. hunt. Yeah. All that's fun. That's all plot. That's all just moving the story forward. So that's that's one type of story. The other type of story is you start with a character. You start with a broken character. You start with someone interesting. You start with someone, I mean, I don't take a Wolf of Wall Street. Mm -hmm. You start with someone, or I mean, even better, let's take someone like um, uh, Walter White, Breaking Bad. Interesting character. Dying of cancer, family man, teacher. Like someone that's got dimension to him. He's got loves. He's got desires. He's got dislikes. He's, he's a person. And you start with him and you go, I'm going to turn Walter White into Scarface. <laughs> that's a that's a character driven story. So those are your two types of stories. And what happens a lot of times, and it seems like what happened with the gray is they started with a plot. And when you start with plot, that's great. But at the end of the day, the stories that really stick with us, that really resonate with us, like Return of the King, is not because the action was amazing and the the battles were epic yeah. and like the sword fighting was incredible and it was accurate and it was cool. It's because you developed characters that we cared about. And the plot was just kind of also yeah. cool. Like Star Wars. It's cool to fly around yeah. in space. But I care about the characters more than the plot. Yeah. And so with the gray is what it seems like is when you have a really good plot and then you got to fill it in with characters, a lot of times the characters, they end up being two dimensional. Like they're not, they're not fully developed, fleshed out people that we can really get on board with their cause. Like we want, I mean, this, I'm saying all this without ever seeing this movie, but um, like we, I want Liam Neeson to get to his daughter, but do I really care at the end of the day probably not i mean yeah i'm indifferent and the reality is is the character arc the background and it's kind of one of those things like right they're on this this journey this journey of discovery right they're all kind of they're stuck in the cold they're dealing with the fact that they're all probably going to die there's vulnerability so there is like there is character stuff that comes out in the movie and, and some of that's pretty good it's the fact that it's 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 one of the things where the end of the movie destroys the whole movie. And, and typically I don't like to, I don't like yeah. to hold the ending against the story too much. Cause it is, like I said before, it's hard to do like a really good ending, right? Like yeah. if it's, if you're trying to go for shock value and a twist ending, those can be difficult to pull off if you didn't set them up. Right. But if you're looking for a satisfaction, yeah. like complete character arc, all of that, you also kind of want to do it a little different. Don't want to be too archetypical too, you know, like we've seen this before. You kind of want to be a little creative. And so I get it. It's hard. So a lot of times I don't hold endings against stories. But in this case, I think that the bad ending ruins the whole movie. It's like, well, I wouldn't even care to watch it again, you know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like like it's one of – yeah. Yeah, that's that's all I think about it. But, yeah. yeah. And if you're going to kill your main character, it's like – you got to make it worth it, man. Yeah. You got to make the movie worth it to the end to go, ah, ah, that, that stinks that he died, but you know, 
I'm glad I, I went through the journey with him. Yeah. That's a fitting end to him. But yeah. like Maximus dying at the end of Gladiator, mm-hmm. you're okay with it because it's like he killed Commodus. He kind of freed whatever Rome, if yeah. you want to say that. But sure. he like he he did something that was satisfying to his character. It was mm-hmm. thus satisfying to the audience. So like they're they're similar endings. Mm-hmm. Both main characters die. It's just how you got like, there. did you put the time? Did you put the character effort into the story? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So, Give me your unsatisfying. So speaking ending. of yeah, <laughs> so speaking of start now, we're gonna go the other way here, man. Speaking of <laughs> starting with really good characters and really interesting plot, and then totally botching it. That's how you call yourself, Stephen King. Because, <laughs> <laughs> all right. So by by not so good ending. Is actually a bunch of Stephen King endings. And I'm not going to go through. I'm not going to go through all. I've heard the ending of it is pretty bad. The ending of it is weird. Um, So the problem with Stephen King, man, it's just so he is a master of creating stories or not stories, characters, stories. Yes, Mm -hmm. I I would argue, honestly, that Stephen King takes tropey stories, normal stories but he can he is a master of creating a lifelike character yeah. in a story like someone yeah. you feel like you could meet on the street and you would like have a whole history behind like that's a person that lived a life and, and so i've always heard he's really good like i haven't read stephen king but i've heard he's like one of the guys who's just like really good at show don't tell like that's yeah like very good at it he's his his mastery of in, the English language and being able to like get you to see something or feel something with like similes and metaphors and just like describing stuff like he's phenomenal at it. So he so he's got that going for him. And then he's got pretty interesting storylines, man. Like it, there's a clown terrorizing a town lives in the sewers. That's freaky. He got Carrie. A outcast high school girl who has telekinetic powers. That's cool. Mm-hmm. You've got Salem's Lot. What if basically Dracula moves into your neighborhood and starts eating everybody? That's crazy. So he's got awesome storylines, man. And he builds it and builds it and crazy things happen. I mean, he's a master at subverting your expectations. He's not afraid to kill his darlings. He is good at just getting you to a point where you're like, what is going to happen next? And the problem is Stephen King also is asking himself that same question <laughs> because he's a pantser, yeah. meaning he doesn't plot his stories. He just lets them come to him. He has no idea how the story is going to end. He might have a vague idea, mm-hmm. but he has no idea how they're going to end. And so when you get to the end of a Stephen King story, I'm going to take the Tommy knockers as an example here. You either a, completely lose interest in what the story is because it just like stuff weird stuff starts happening like Stephen King will like stuff will come into the story that had nothing to do with the beginning and now all of a sudden this is a major player so in the Tommy knockers like you spend two-thirds of the book getting to know two or three characters and it Tommy knockers is about aliens and they this girl finds the like an, basically a spaceship in her backyard and she starts to uncover it. But as she does that, it starts having this like insidious effect on the townsfolk. Mm-hmm. And so people start going crazy and people start doing weird things. And so that's all really interesting. 
then you get the third of the book and all of a sudden like characters are just either they died and you're like, Oh, okay. I guess that main character I've been hanging out with is just done now. And then like that when a character dies in Stephen King, it's not like, Oh, they'll return somehow or like something that they did. will have an app. It's like, nope, they're gone. They're dead. And so you, you, you start getting into all these other characters that you have no idea who they are. You don't care about them because you haven't spent any time with them. And so then like in the Tommy knockers, it kind of, everyone just dies mm-hmm. like they, that's kind of the end of it and so that's also how needful things dies mm-hmm. which is about what if the devil opened up a shop in your hometown and in order there was no currency in a shop mm-hmm. in order to get things from him you had to do him a favor mm-hmm. like that's a cool concept ending the story everyone dies mm-hmm. and so my problem with that is that when everyone dies, I hate that as a horror trope because to me, it's it's a lack of clever writing. It shows that. And I'm not saying Stephen King's not clever. Like, let me say that foremost. I think Stephen King suffers with endings are really, really difficult. And if you write as many books as Stephen King has, you're probably going to strike out seven times out right. of ten. But those three awesome endings that you have, The Shining great ending um you know the i I, honestly i would argue salem's lot has a pretty good ending i like salem's lot but the problem is stephen king has a bunch of really bad dark tower like isn't any good the dark tower is very and that's like his magnum opus it is his magnum opus and it comes down to just it just comes down to the expectations you had for Roland and his quartet just didn't didn't reach the level that he like the from the very beginning the dark tower is like the edifice the thing that Roland is striving towards and then you get to it and you realize it's like kind of a multiverse it just kind of takes okay. away from like the singularity that is that is the dark okay. tower. And so the, the dark tower represents basically all of Stephen King's books and his worlds. And so that at that point you're like, ah, okay, like that's cool. But like you kind of wanted it to be, you know, Sauron's tower, whatever. I forget what it's called, but whatever that it like you wanted it to be that like it's physical thing that when I destroy it, it destroys the bad guy. And so, but the problem with Stephen King is just he he's so good at the beginnings and the middles of stories that when he kind of does a tropey end to a horror story, it's not a bad ending in the sense of like it's kind of expected in a horror mm-hmm. story. It's just bad compared to Stephen yeah. King. You know, like Stephen King, you expect to have a clever, witty like, oh, my gosh, I didn't even see that coming. Or, oh, I forgot about that. Like a kind of like a Harry Potter ending, like a like a, an ending where you're like, oh, my gosh, like that, like definitely subverted my expectations and it yeah. kind of flip flopped on itself. That's what you kind of expect every time from Stephen King. And that's maybe unfair to Stephen yeah. King. But um, so anyways, I've said a lot about <laughs> Stephen King. Hey. That is that is his endings are my my bad endings. Honorable mention of someone who actually I think ends things well or at least 
progressively gets better through their writing is uh, Brandon Sanderson. Like he writes some fat books, but man, the second half of those books is always like way better than the first. It's like, and typically, a lot oh of times, yeah, I find myself in a lot of books like I'm more interested in the setup and the conflict you've set up, and then sometimes it fizzles out at the end. Rolled and yeah. And Sanderson, he kind of takes the beginning to set up like all the rules of his world and the story you're about to hear. And then it's like, oh, all these like little things he's been telling you throughout the story, they all kind of matter. And he's going to test to see how much you were paying attention. And uh, (laughs) I'm in the second Mistborn novel right now. And it's like, oh, man, it takes a long time time for these to get going. But it is it is worth it. You know, it really the magic system alone is worth it. So, yeah. So shout out to, to Sanderson, but we have to go in for our second hour and start talking about one of what I would consider mm. to be my favorite endings to a story. And I think part of it is because it's my favorite story and the fact that it just ends good is always nice. And yes. And so today we are talking about, in our main topic, we are talking about Lord of the Rings, Return of the King. And this movie came out in 2003 to wonderful, wonderful success. This was a huge film, a huge phenomenon. People came out to see this movie in droves, as we will talk about. But honestly, in 2003, we're talking about 18 years ago. The world was a much different place. And we want to talk about- Oh, man, when you say it like that- (laughs) We 18 want, years. We want to talk about the state of the world in 2003, the, mm-hmm. the year that Return of the King was released. So, Zach, why don't you take us through a little bit of the information that you have found about the state of the world in 2003? All right. 18 years ago, man. 2003. Gas. You know, gas right now, people are, it's insane. you know, pouring it in, <laughs> into their trash bags. <laughs> like, What's going on out there, people? Like, taking their grocery bags and filling stuff up. Like, we got some crazy yeah. stuff happening right now involving gas. It's insane. At, you know, 315 to 3, I mean, around me, it's 315 a gallon. I don't know what it's right at, in Ohio. Right it's usually like three pretty, bucks a gallon. Yeah, it's usually cheaper over there. But gas, on average... In 2003, it cost a dollar eighty-three, man. So, the good old days good old of a dollar eighty-three. I remember when it hit a dollar. My parents are like, "Oh my gosh, what's this what world cup?" <laughs> yeah. yeah. And now we're pumped if it goes to like you know two fifty. We're like, "Oh, it's a steal." They must, they're giving yeah, gas like, away. Oh man, like, yeah, I'll just drive around for fun. <laughs> I'll yeah. Just, I'll just so drive gas- my car around because I've got one. You know, I've got one. Gas is two fifty. Let's do this. Yeah. Um. So, uh, speaking of high prices, housing right now is in very much a runaway bull market. market. It is. Yeah. People buying houses for more than asking price. Never do it, guys. Way more. Never do it. Way more than asking price. Um. I mean, as someone who tried to buy a house this past year. I can tell you it was a crazy market. So back in the day, back in 2003, the average price of the country of of a new house, if you wanted a brand new house, was $246,000. And so that's, yeah. I mean, pretty that's reasonable. pretty good. I mean, actually, I would say for a seller, that's a pretty good price. Like mm-hmm. if you were selling then. 
because this is pre-market crash too. So I believe in 2005 yeah. it peaked, and then in 08 yeah. it crashed, and it was bad Hard. for a long time. Yeah, it was bad yeah. for a long time. <clears throat> yeah, yeah. No, that's a good point. This is definitely pre-crash. Um, and a little more somber news here. I, rem- I actually yeah, remembered I remember this. This is sad. Um, the Space Shuttle Columbia disaster. This is when it was re-entering orbit over Texas, and it just basically blew apart on its re-entry, and all seven of the uh, the cosmon or not the cosmonauts, the astronauts. Sorry, that was a Armageddon reference. Um, that the uh, <laughs> this is a serious thing. I, I'm sorry. Um, yeah, but all all seven of the astronauts they all they all perished in that that disaster. I remember seeing that on TV, not watching it live, but yeah. seeing that it crashed. And I was like, oh my gosh, yeah. like. And then wondering, are we going back to space ever? Because mm-hmm. I mean, everyone remembers the uh, what was the the one that was going into space? That was in like the eighties, the Challenger. Eighties, yeah, Challenger explosion. So yeah. it was just like, I mean, the eighties. That it's. I mean, I was 20 years apart. We had two ex- like catastrophic mm-hmm. explosions. Right. So that I was like, we're done with space. Mm-hmm. So um, we have pushed onward. But I remember that was a very somber moment in 2003. Another somber moment. We went to uh, we went to Iraq, mm-hmm. we went to war with Iraq here. I know that was depending on what political party you're involved with. It was either a good yeah. thing or the worst thing you could ever do and the world had its say. And so that was a whole thing. I mean, I think retroactively looking at it where, wherever you fall politically, I think you can kind of come to the conclusion. Iraq wasn't the best choice. I mean, I mean, yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. In 2003 though, it it was was like, "Ah!" now, (laughs) yeah. Now we're like, that was was probably probably a bad move. Great idea. Yeah. So the WMD, thing that was all in 2003 um here's something cool the human genome project so basically going through and identifying and tracking and logging the the human dna it finally finished it started in i think 1983 so it took 20 years to yeah to crack the human it was 99 percent. so it's not 100 percent finished but it was 99 percent finished and they published that work, so that's pretty cool. Yeah. That's a milestone in just genetics. Um, this is one of my favorite things that happened in 2003. Tampa Bay Buccaneers, they won the, the Super, Super Bowl. Super Bowl, baby. Against the, the, the Raiders. Raiders. Las Vegas Oakland. Raiders. But it was the Oakland, Oakland Raiders. Raiders. The Raiders. <laughs> yeah, the Raiders. The Raiders. This was called the Pirate Bowl in 2003. All right, I'll... Because we had... I will I will Venmo you a Chick-fil-A sandwich <laughs> if you can oh, if you can name the Super Bowl MVP of that Super Bowl. Cause I know who it is and I didn't look it up. Oh, the Super Bowl MVP 2003. I gotta think who was on I, I should probably actually fact check myself after, but but I'll I gotta say it for, for Tampa Bay. Oh my gosh! Who was the quarterback for Tampa Bay? I can tell you, it wasn't the quarterback. It wasn't the quarterback. Oh, dude! Quarterback, I believe, was Brad Johnson. Oh gosh, I would never have gotten that. (laughs) Um, 
I'm gonna say Julio Jones. What? That's a terrible guess. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know who played on Tampa I'm Bay. I'm pretty sure. I'm pretty sure it's a guy named Dexter Jackson. Ah, I'm correct. Yes, Dexter Jackson. <laughs> Dexter he, Jackson. <laughs> he was he was a safety and not even really big time name. Wasn't a Pro Bowl or anything like that. But he had a few interceptions. Yeah, obviously had a few interceptions no in the uh, Pirate Bowl, as it is called, as you like to call it. And return one for a touchdown, and that was like the game-deciding thing. And so, yeah, Dexter Jackson will go down in the annals of history as the Super Bowl <laughs> MVP of 2003, and nobody knows who he is. Dexter Jackson. Yeah. But I know who he is because I, ha- I have that, uh, I have that uh, Jason Isaacs brain like my father. So, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, just random facts, obscure hey, people. It's Dexter like- Jackson. You know who that is? <laughs> No, <laughs> no one will ever know who Dexter Jackson is. Uh, um, let's go on to the number one song, or at least the top performing single in 2003. Mm-hmm. For those of you guys who were in eighth grade and jamming to 50 Cent, 50 yeah, Cent, 50. You'll, you'll remember this, in the club. In the club. This is actually yeah. a great, this is a good song back in the yeah. day, man. This was actually reminded me of my the uh when i turned 16 i made a mixtape because this is back in the day when we made cds we burned cds yeah. and this was one of the first songs on my nope. cd was nope. in the club by 50 nope. cent i would nope. <laughs> blast that on the way to school yeah, so this was a good one man nice. um yeah honorable mentions lose yourself by eminem oh, yeah, there was yeah, Baby Boy by Beyonce. Um, so, yeah, those were also top performing, real big ones. Um, and then if you tuned into uh, which whatever one of our previous episodes. Yeah, I think it was. I th- do you remember I think which it one? it was uh, Two Towers. Yeah, Two, two ta- Towers. Yeah. Towers. You guys will know what the number one show in America in 2003. CSI, taking CSI. it again. Yeah, taking it again. Number one again. However, there, there is a development in the story, okay? So, as we talked about in Two Towers, 2002 was the first year of American Idol. And in 2003, it must have been so hot, it was moved to two days a week. And so, the number two show in America was American Idol that showed on Tuesdays. And then the number three show was American Idol it showed on <laughs> Wednesdays. So yeah, I mean, I'm not gonna lie. I remember watching those two days too in 2003. Oh, yeah, it, like Ruben Stoddard was was my favorite, and in particular, I loved rooting for him because my mom wanted Clay Aiken to win, and I just I love just giving her a hard time, being like, "It's yeah, Ruben all it's the way, Ruben." <laughs> exactly. Dude, so was that the first year they did voting for? American Idol, like the audience voted, or did they do that the year Kelly Clarkson won? I don't know. I didn't watch it when Kelly Clarkson was on. Yeah, neither did I. I just remember thinking, like, man, I really wish I. So I think that I think 2003 was also the first year I got my quote unquote cell phone. Mm-hmm. It was basically Dang, like a plastic you were young man box. Dude, uh, okay, listen, you were, you it wasn't that kids. impressive. You were one of it those was. Kids. I had like 15 minutes max 
on this phone. And it was like, it was only to call my parents when I was done with football or baseball gotcha. practice. Gotcha. So it wasn't really to call friends and text. I couldn't text. It costs like a dollar to send text. <laughs> right? yeah. And so I remember American Idol was like, text who you want <laughs> to win true. to that that's number. True. And I was like, I want to text <laughs> Ruben Stuttered, but it's going to cost me so much money. It's not worth it. So it's just funny back in the day that, you know, like I had Virgin Mobile, like they were making money off, yeah. you know, American Idol because everyone was trying to text in and tell, you know, who who's the host of American Idol? Ryan Seacrest, man. Ryan yeah. Seacrest, that's right. Yeah, that's I right. think he hosted it the whole run, I think. I mean, not... You're probably right. Is he right. hosting it now? Because yeah. it's still on now, right? I think uh, it's still on. I think it got picked did, up by a different network. No, 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 no. It's, oh, no, you're right. Well, Nick Cannon, didn't he do, or is that America's Got Talent? Uh, that is um, X Factor or America's Got Talent? I th- Yeah, I think America's Got Talent. All right, Ryan Seacrest. Come on, man. Where's she, where I'm looking at his bio on Wikipedia. How does he have the worst Wikipedia page ever? <laughs> oh, on air with Ryan Seacrest. I don't want that. I want just Ryan Seacrest, guys. Ryan Seacrest. Yeah, we want Ryan Seacrest, bro. Just his... <clears throat> I want Ryan Seacrest just on American All right, Idol. You know what? Forget this. We're just going to say Ryan Seacrest was the host at the time, and he was for a long time. If you know... if. Listener, if you know if Ryan Seacrest was the host of American Idol for the entire run, head over to Steel Lake Studio. Let us know because the community tab. Yes, yes. It's our little plug Uh, there. But yeah, man, I I watched that way more than CSI. I never watched CSI. So I was not a contributing factor to the number one show in America. But you know what I was a contributing factor to? Not CSI, but definitely the Lord of the Rings fandom. (laughs) That's where I was a big contributor. And in 2003, I was so excited to see the movie, The Return of the King. I was supposed to go see it on a Saturday with some of my friends. And this is, like, there's a few times in my life where I've been a really bad friend. But there are few, because... Because I don't like to be the guy. I don't like to be the guy who's a bad friend. I don't like to be the guy who's a bad husband. I don't like to be the guy who's a bad son. Like, I just, I like to be the good guy in as many circumstances Mm. as I can be. However, a couple of my friends were going to go see The Return of the King on a Saturday. And I think, like, you know, one of the girls who was there, we kind of, like, had a thing. Like, I think we were, like, boyfriend and girlfriend. We called each other that. But, like, only really entitled. We were nice. in sixth grade, right? How much you know in sixth grade? Or seventh nice. grade? I don't know. We were in one of those grades. And anyway, the movie came out, and I was supposed to go see the movie with them on a Saturday. However, I got a call on Friday night from a friend of mine. Same friend of mine who I saw Chamber of Secrets with before my dad. And <laughs> this guy was, like, the king of, like, getting me to see movies I was supposed to see with other people. <laughs> and so he calls me up. He's like, hey, my mom and I are going to see Return of the King tonight. You want to go? And obviously I said yes. <laughs> yeah, of course. But here's the kicker. I had like $12 to my name. So that was enough money to mm. see it once. And and I was kind of at the phase, right? Like, I would maybe be able to tell my parents to give me money to go see it 
you know, one time, but they weren't going to yeah. pay for me to see it a second time, right? And, and I, they, they were yeah. trying to teach me responsibility. So, like, movies and all that stuff, it kind of started to be like, okay, you mow the lawn, now you do some stuff to earn money. You got to pay for these little fun things you do, which is kind of nice to have a little responsibility. Yeah. But I had $12 to my name, so I had enough money to see it one time. And I'm thinking to myself, like, ah, uh, should I go? I don't know. Okay, yeah, I'll go. And so, (laughs) so anyway, I go see the movie the night it comes out. It's amazing. Like, I'm having the time of my life in the movie theater, and I'm loving every moment of the story. And I have to be honest, like, I was actually pretty shocked. I went into, because I hadn't read the books yet, and, like, I didn't want anyone to tell me what happened in the story. And I went into the final movie, like, I was fully believing Frodo had to die. Like, right, he was going to get pushed into the Mount Doom, like, his journey was going to lead to his peril. So I was legitimately surprised when he didn't die um, in in the the film. I was like, oh, he actually lives, get a little bit of a happy ending. And man, I love the movie. It was so good. And I remember Mm. just going home that night, being so happy with the film, and then trying to go to bed, having this, like, deep, dark feeling. (laughs) Yes. What am I going to tell my friends? What am I, yeah. And it was pretty late at this point. And I know they were going to, like, (laughs) you know how you said no one goes to the movies early? couple weeks ago when we yes. were talking about yes for some reason or another my friends in seventh grade decided they were going to go to the first showing of return of the king on a saturday maybe because it was cheap what is that like 9 a.m no i think Jeez. it was like 11 or something like that <laughs> oh, gosh but anyway i decided that uh i just wasn't gonna go i just i just wasn't no. gonna show up and so Couple of my this is 2003. You couldn't just text your friends and say, hey, I'm not coming. Right, like, right. Let's right. paint the picture right. here. <laughs> right. So, so like, I didn't you, have a cell if phone. If you ghosted your friends, everyone thought you were dead. I didn't have a cell phone. I didn't have texting. And so anyway, none of my friends had texting. So I know that that morning my phone rang. It was like 10.50. And they must have been calling from the payphone. The house phone. They must yeah, be calling from the payphone at the movie theater because my house phone <laughs> was ringing, and I was the only one home. See, that was another. That was another catch. Yeah. Even if I would have uh, wanted to go, I had mismanaged my time to where I didn't even secure a ride. Like, I, yeah. so, so, so like I had to like find a ride, whether my brother is something. So I didn't even have a ride. And so my phone's ringing at like 10.50 in the morning. You committed and, to not going. You I, made sure. I just let it go to voicemail. <laughs> so, you know, of oh. course I checked the message. It's like my my friends, my little girlfriend at the time, like, you know, just yeah. wondering if you're coming. <laughs> and so, and yeah, so anyway, that's when you heard the message. Give it up, dude. And, oh, uh, my gosh. So anyway... About 15 minutes later, the phone starts ringing again. Dude, these kids were loaded, (laughs) by the way. They're, like, paying for the movies and the payphone at the movie theater. Well, well, that must have been, like, their last 50s because they called, went to voicemail, same person, kind of the same message. Anyway, (laughs) a couple hours go by, right, because it's a long movie. (laughs) (laughs) And so I get a call, like, later in the afternoon. Where were you? What happened? <laughs> so 
<laughs> so I totally lied. And I was like, I'm so sorry. I just, I got really sick. And <laughs> <laughs> oh, come on. And I slept through it. And so <laughs> Oh jeez. Anyway, the truth is I your other friend was your other friend friends with these friends? Yes, yes. When you went that. Yes, we we kept it a secret. Oh, dude, that's another layer. I couldn't do this because I'd be like, this is another layer to the lie <laughs> that, like, now my, I, I'm bringing my friend into I didn't ask, lying. I with- didn't ask him to lie. I just kind of, you know, after I saw him on Monday at it was school, implied. I kind of laid out to him what happened. He knew. He knew what to do. And so, oh, anyway, um, there was, like, three of them that went and saw the movie. I feel really bad because... I think a bunch of them were seeing it because it was my idea. <laughs> <laughs> and I totally just ghosted them because I blew all my money so I could see it like 24 hours earlier. Yeah. Not even. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. So Just to get that instant gratification. As much as I love this movie, there will always be the memory that I did one mm. of the worst friend things in order to see this movie. <laughs> but oh, it just goes to no. show my dedication to the to the IP. <laughs> yeah, it does, man. <laughs> oh my gosh, that is hilarious, man. Uh, I about the for first me, time you saw this movie or read the yeah, book. So I saw it. I did a good friend thing, and I went with it. <laughs> I said to so I saw it with, um, so I saw it with the Dragon Ball Z kid. For okay. those who have listened to our nice. earlier episodes. Um, and I thought that was always interesting. Not at the time. Because at the time, I was pretty invested in Lord of the Rings. This was also the same year Finding Nemo came out. Mm-hmm. Um, the last Matrix came out this year. So, like, big movies were coming out. But I remember this was the one I was most excited for. This and Finding Nemo. I was pretty stoked about Finding Nemo for some reason in 2003. But, okay. um, but this one I was really excited about. And... My so we went on a, like a set Friday night and our our so what I always loved about my friendship with this guy was that my dad was also really good friends with his dad. Okay, and so we would get to hang out and my dad and his dad would get to hang out and it was never like not that when you're young you feel like you have to entertain your parents like mm-hmm. both the parents and like make it worth their while but like I knew I never had to worry about that like. Yeah. I just knew that they were going to get along. And what our thing was is we would go out and do stuff together. So we'd go see a baseball game or we'd go to like the movies and then we'd go to the 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 winking lizard afterwards Ooh. and get wings together. <laughs> and like all four of us. For, for, it would... for a second, for a second, <laughs> I thought you were about to say we get wasted. <laughs> I was like, why is this so funny, man? We're just going to get some <laughs> some wings. For those who don't know, um uh Winking Lizard. I mean, it's a restaurant, but it's also like they're they're pretty well known to be like a a good like adult hangout spot too, you know. <laughs> it's just like when when I heard that W sound rolling off of your mouth. Uh. No, no wonder you guys liked hanging out with your dad so much. (laughs) No, so we we kept it real PG when we would go to to Winking Lizards and I I, Winking Lizard and I always remembered 
the one time this the reason why this sticks out that going to see Lord of the Rings so much is because not only was Lord of the Rings amazing. So we would go and kind of this the, the beginning of the story. I was like, I didn't understand it at the time because I didn't really peg my friend's dad to be a, f- a fantasy guy. Mm-hmm. This is a guy. He works at a bakery. He's a blue collar worker. He owns a pine tree farm, mm-hmm. which essentially he just sells pine trees to people that want Christmas trees. He's a avid hunter. He, you know, he's the kind of guy like when you're hanging out, he'll fall asleep on you. Mm-hmm. Like if you're not talking yeah. to him, like he's yeah. just he's worked so hard that he's 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 the kind of guy that can just fall asleep in any chair in any situation. Yeah. And is comfortable. So like going to see lord of the rings yeah. i was like this is not that it's like too intelligent for him i'm just like this is way too nerdy for you man yeah, yeah, <laughs> like yeah. you're not gonna enjoy any of this <laughs> right <laughs> and if you haven't seen any of the previous movies you're also not gonna understand a thing going right. on in this movie so i like it wasn't until later in life that i thought about that but so we go and see it and once again everyone's dressed up like every time i tell a lord of the Rings story people are dressed up like hey freaks it must so, be where you live it, it it's awesome it, it adds to this i would do i mean every three for three people were dressed up like frodo by then i knew who the characters yeah. were so i could be like oh that's so and so that's so and so um so we go and see it and <laughs> i remember like my friend's dad kind of dozing off at points because this is a three-hour movie so it's like this is a this is an event you're not just going to see a movie you're going to see an event and so we get done it was awesome like we we love the movie and i remember afterwards we went to once again the winking lizard and we got some wings and at this particular night my dad and my friend's dad decided to get at the time we didn't have quaker steak and lube or if we did i never even heard of it in 2003 yeah. but they decided to get the 911 wings the hottest wings that winking oh, lizard nice. had yeah, dude. And so and they, they strictly told us like, this is not for you. This is like this is a, this is an adult thing. <laughs> this is like they're getting drinks. You're not allowed to have it. A sip of this. This is like we're getting the hottest wigs. You're not allowed to even touch them. <laughs> like, I don't even want to see you do it. And so they only give you six wings because, I mean, you're probably not going to eat more than one. And I remember they start eating them. And my dad, for those who don't know, him, he's a bald guy. And I just remember his head just broke out in sweat like it was just pouring down his head down his eye like into his eye like just his face was red and he was just sweating and just could not handle the wings my friend's dad it was like he's eating cool ranch chips man like it's just like love this stuff it's like he eats this stuff every single day at his job <laughs> and he's just breezing through these wings and like occasionally be like no sorry like piece piece of wing caught in my throat it wasn't like oh it's hot it's just like oh like a normal eating habit caught in my throat and i just i'll never forget that night because like my dad just like totally sweated out pro pro move went through with like the yeah. other wing i think or other two wings so like he finished he finished the job man yeah. but Got like just see the two 
reactions of like just my friend's dad just kind of breezing through it. My dad just like, I got to do it. But like, this is not going to be enjoyable. (laughs) So I'll always remember. Yeah, I'll always remember winking lizard right after going to see Lord of the Rings. But my initial reaction of it was this was an incredible movie, man. Mm -hmm. Like the if you want a movie with epic lines like poetic epic lines that hit you in the heart in the gut every time this is the movie man yeah. like this movie i could, like even just recently watching it to get refreshed i'm like every single piece of dialogue must have just been gone like scrutinize to the point where it's like, is this the best word? Is this yeah. the best? And I know they pulled a lot or some from the book. So like they had some help, sure. but I mean, even the lines that they kind of created and went offhand and just were like, it's some of the, the funny lines between like Gimli and Legolas. Like they, <clears throat> they still managed to make it sound like that old English poetic language. And I just yeah. like that to me, that's such a creative endeavor mm-hmm. to go through every line of dialogue and to keep it consistent, to not yeah. really break away from like, you don't really even hear even just in casual conversation between characters, just how we're talking now. It's right. always framed in that Lord of the Rings, old mm-hmm. English style. And yeah. I, even when I first saw it, I was like, this is insane. This is like listening to poetry, right? But like poetry, you can understand not like, the first time you hear Shakespeare and you're like, what the what heck? Is like, is it just still English? Like, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> yeah, but like poetry, you can understand, you can feel that is what I felt when I f- watched this more than the other two. This is like an epic ending to an epic story, which is yeah. what it deserves. Yeah, absolutely. And what we'll do here now is we've kind of done our initial impact. We normally kind of do this after plot summary, history, all of that. We decided to start off with it this time to kind of give you guys a feel for how we felt about this movie the first time we saw it. And now we'll kind of go and break down some stuff about it. And we'll just do a quick plot summary for those of you who might be foggy on the plot or you've never seen it or read it before. Uh, And from this point forward, yeah, spoilers for Lord of the Rings Return of the king all the way through if you uh, want to stop now and go watch it and read it go ahead and come back but uh, I think you would still enjoy it if you were spoiled through the end to be honest so anyway I'm going to go through this plot pretty quick I, I think I did it pretty quick with two towers but we're going to try and do it uh, as speedy as I can so I will do the plot <coughs> summary from the movie version and then I'll tell you some differences between the book and the movie alright so basically the story begins with uh, Aragorn Gandalf Legolas Gimli all of them are journeying to Isengard because they are seeing what's going on with Saruman and they show up and it's flooded and then they meet Merry and Pippin there and Treebeard and it's like, oh, hey, you guys were okay after all. That's good to know. And so at that moment in time, it's very ambiguous of what happens to Saruman next. They kind of have a little bit of a conversation with him and then it, the, that scene, that mm-hmm. whole scene is kind of over. They find the Palantir and then they move on. In the extended version of the movie, they actually do take the time yep. to show Saruman's death on screen, which I think is rather important. 
And that's actually an area where the book and the film are quite different. At this point, Saruman does have a discussion with the heroes, but he doesn't die. They don't kill him in the book, which is kind of important for where the story in the book goes. And I think the theatrical Mm. cut of the movie, not having Saruman die, was kind of a weird cut, as well as I think Saruman dying where he does... Uh, in the fashion that he does, is kind of a little bit uh, missing out on what Tolkien intended for Saruman as a character. Because I think, from my perspective, I you know, I'm not Tolkien, but I always got the perception that Sauron's a threat that people will always unite against and fight against because he's the pure evil. But mm-hmm. Saruman's kind of the more disturbing villain because he's the one who nobody thought was going to be bad, but was purely evil, right? Self-seeking, yeah. manipulative, not not obvious about attaining power or any of that at all, doing it in a very meddling type of way. And I feel like out of the mm. two villain types that you see, Saruman's supposed to be that kind of villain who it's like, hey, this is kind of more of who you're going to see pop up as a villain in real life, whereas Sauron's kind of like, there's always going to be evil that influences yeah. in some way, shape, or form, whereas Saruman's more of the uh, symbol of like, hey, you're going to have you know, sneaky fellas amongst you. It's powerful ones, too. <laughs> um, so they move on past that, mm-hmm. and then Pippin touches the Palantir. That doesn't happen. Uh, yeah, that does happen in the books. Um Pippin touches the Palantir, has a little vision, Sauron sees him, and and then Gandalf's like, all right, man, well, you and I, we got to go to Minas Tirith now and kind of warn the people there of uh, you being kind of a, a little irresponsible. And so they go to Minas Tirith, which is like the big, big city. And I got to be honest, man, the first time I saw this thing on screen, I was like, this is the coolest place I've <laughs> yeah, ever seen. It Gigantic is medieval city built into a mountainside. It is it on it is screen, everything you expect it looks to be beautiful. epic. Like, yeah. And it looks just yeah. like an Alan Lee painting. It is, it's, it's phenomenal. And so yeah. you have a lot of time spent in Minas Tirith. You're introduced to the steward of Gondor. Um, <clears throat> forgot his name. What the heck's going on with me? Steward of Denethor? Gondor. Denethor. My goodness. He's like one of my favorite characters in Lord of the Rings, the card <laughs> game. How'd I forget him? Um, yeah. You're introduced to Denethor. He's he's dealing with some grief for his son being lost to Boromir, and he is also irresponsibly kind of neglecting the city that he's supposed to be defending, right? He's kind of letting it all go to shambles, and he's not making any military or tactical decisions on how to get ready to fight these orcs who just took a, a stronghold that they had in Osgiliath. And so it's a good thing that Gandalf showed up when he did because Denethor needs some help and he's not willing to send for it. He's just kind yes. of willing to say, like, oh, I'll just let the city burn, whatever. And so he needs to send for help, and so Mary, I mean, I'm sorry, Pippin sneaks up onto the towers and lights the towers, and there's this really cool sweeping scene of a bunch of different uh, mm-hmm. vistas within New Zealand and a little bit of CGI, and eventually all of these um, beacons get lit, and then the people of Rohan see it, and they're like, all right, we got to go and help. And meanwhile, Frodo and Sam are continuing on their journey to Mordor, and they are going up the stairs of Kirith Ungol. Frodo and Sam get into a little bit of a spat over some falsely eaten lembus bread that was all set up and plotted by Gollum, which that is a part that's not in the books, which is very interesting. And Frodo and Sam don't have mm. the 
the like emotional tear and like Frodo saying, Sam, you've got to go home. None of that happens in the book. So that's a movie ad, I think, to just kind of add tension and to add to Sam's character yeah. arc. Um, because more simply what happens is in the book, they go through the cave together, and because it's so dark, they get separated. They just lose each other. Yeah. And then Gollum attacks Sam in the dark. And it, they still get separated, but it just is not a different fashion in the book, which I actually prefer. I prefer the version in the book because I don't like, I don't like how the... The movie took Frodo to the point where he doesn't trust Sam anymore. It just doesn't make any sense. I know they're trying to show like the ring is making him paranoid and all of that, but it's still like to me it just doesn't necessarily connect as well. And then Sam just like bumbling going down the steps is kind of, you know, it's like, wait, okay. Yeah. I don't know if I, yeah, yeah. you know, that was a necessary moment, I guess, for the character arc for the screen. But I like the book portrayal better. It was a Hollywood moment, yeah, man. Yeah, Hollywood moment. It was a Hollywood sure. moment For worked sure. into a fantasy story. <laughs> For sure. And then Sam, he fights off. He he fights off Gollum. Then he fights off Shelob. And Frodo gets stabbed in the belly by Shelob's venom. And Sam thinks that he's dead. So he takes the ring. And then some orcs are coming down. And he hides. And the orcs take Frodo and they're going to take him to the Tower of Kirith Ungol, and Sam's all paranoid, and then he overhears the orc saying, like, oh, yeah, he's not dead. Shelob just likes to poison him and eat him while they're still alive. And then Sam's like, oh, my gosh, you know? And then at that yeah. point, actually, that's the point where the Two Towers ends. Like, the Two Towers ends on a pretty good cliffhanger. Um, yeah. And that is, like, halfway through the Return of the King when that happens. And so we'll jump back to our other friends, they're fighting at Minas Tirith. Gandalf's helping defend. Gondor's being sieged by orcs. And they've got this big, like, wolf-headed ram called Grom that's, like, barreling through the doors. Dude, it's so and awesome. And there's this really nice cinematic moment where Grom comes through Grom, the doors, Grom, uh, Grom. the big city gates. And, um, you know, they're losing. Gondor's losing. And then they hear the horn of Gondor blow. And then Theoden and the Riders of Rohan. I mean, talk about one of the best speeches in yes. all of the movies. Oh, um, dude, it's so and good. A lot of that it's is so taken good. straight from the book. Uh, I love yeah. I love the character Theoden. Um, mm -hmm. And that's another yeah. thing about the Lord of the Rings that the movie, I think, does a pretty good job of making these characters feel like mythological heroes. And mm -hmm. in the book, it, it's it's great at it. Obviously, I think it's it's does it better. But the book, it does this awesome thing where you get to know enough about a character and you know enough about their background and what they do. And yeah. you're always kind of wondering, like, how did they get to the point where they were? Especially, like, with characters like Theoden, who were, like, really noble kings. And, like... Denethor, how did he get so far to the point of being crazy? And so mm. I just love that with Lord of the Rings. There's always so much wondering of what the people were like. Mm. Um, yeah. So anyway, there's a battle that happens. It's really cool. And then Aragorn, he was on this journey. He goes and he gets this undead army on the paths to the dead. That's another part that's quite a bit different in the book. But uh, instead of instead of getting his sword from Arwen, which he gets in the movie, he's given the banner of Elendil. So a lot of the same type of beats, just with different devices. Mm -hmm. And so there's a battle at the Pelennor Fields and... 
kind of swings back and forth. It looks like Rohan's got the edge, and then the people from the south come, the Haradrim come, and when it seems like they're getting the edge, then Aragorn shows up in the boats with the ghost army, and then, you know, <laughs> you've got an invincible ghost army, and, and they just totally yeah. take over at that point. And yeah. I do have to mention that one of the greatest scenes is when Eowyn defeats the Witch King, stabs him right in the face with her sword. I and, am no man. And I don't think they could have done it in the film. But in the book, they actually they never reveal who Eowyn is until she takes off the helmet. Um, because Mary's mm. riding along with someone who he thinks is named Durnhelm, right? And in, in the yep. book, you can... Because you can't see it, you can kind of hide that um, very well, right? Whereas in the movie, it's like, oh, well, that's obviously the same actress. You know, there's <laughs> there's, yeah. there's nothing you really can <laughs> do about it. So there's uh, Witch King's dead. A lot of people hurt. Frodo and Sam continuing to get them out of doom. And F Sam, he shows up at Kirithungul, fights a bunch of orcs, saves Frodo. They continue on their journey, making some progress. And there's some difficulties. They have to hide in orc gear, which is really heavy. And then there's some orcs that are marching. They almost capture them. They escape in the midst of a fight. They get real close to Mount Doom. Movie cuts. And then Aragorn and a bunch of the people, they're marching on the Black Gate, trying to just, you know, distract Sauron. There's this guy with this really nasty-looking mouth that comes and talks to him. Aragorn beheads him. And then he, you know, he calls for the men of the West to fight with him. <laughs> and then they go, and they storm the gate, and they're fighting. And the movie cuts. And then, you know, Sam is all like I can't carry it for you Frodo but I can carry you and he starts I carrying him carry right you. at this really like emotional scene you know Gollum pops out and tackles him and it's like oh no that stupid thing is still alive and so <laughs> so then Frodo he runs into Mount Doom and he's standing there and then Sam gets in there and it's like you know that scene you saw in the very first movie in the prologue it's like the same scene but with a different character Frodo Sam's like he's just throw it in and then Frodo's like, no, and he puts the ring on, and then you get the, the really high-pitched music, and then Gollum, mm -hmm. he comes, and Gollum kind of saves the day, you know, because he jumps on Frodo. The true hero of Lord of the Rings, <laughs> The true man. hero of Lord of the Rings, Smeagol. Um, <laughs> Smeagol. Bites the In finger off, <laughs> yep. falls into the flames, everything's destroyed, the world is saved, and that is just one of, like, four endings. And... The <laughs> world is yes. saved. Essentially, the way it wraps up, Aragorn becomes king. Hobbits return to the Shire. In the Shire, nobody could give a care that they just saved the world. And mm -hmm. didn't even know what was happening. Yeah. Time passes in the Shire, and eventually Frodo, he leaves. Because the West. let's let's recap here. How long did it take from the moment that Lord of the Rings started? Till it ended, like in book time. I think it was a year and a half, or maybe a little a year over. Year and a half. Yeah. So that's how much time passed. I mean, the movies, you can watch all three of them. You're like, how the heck did they not know what was going on? Well, I mean, almost two years went by. And I mean, a lot happened in there in Frodo and his the fellowship's lives, but yep. think about if you just stayed home for a year and a half, you'd be like, you have no idea what's going on in the world. Mm-hmm. And we're not going to talk about it at this moment. We'll kind of get through some of the facts and history first. But yeah. there is actually an omitted ending that was in the books that wasn't in the film called The Scouring of the Shire. And mm -hmm. we'll talk a little bit about that and if it was a good cut or not for the movie to make uh, and what it means. 
But guys, when this movie came out, it was explosively successful. Like this, <sighs> this movie was insane. But you kind of expected that it was going to be good, right? The first movie was good. The second movie was good. And this was already an established, successful franchise. So The Lord of the Rings, at this point in history, when the movie came out, was the best-selling fantasy franchise of all time. Uh, as to date, it has sold 150 million copies of Lord of the Rings. And I think that's combining all Fellowship of the Ring, Two Towers, Return of the King... Mm-hmm. However, since then, Harry Potter has surpassed it. But, I mean, there's also four more Harry Potter books. So, it's hard to tell which one has, like, the actual bigger audience. But probably Harry Potter. Uh, and good for Harry Potter. Harry Potter's a very good book series. But when the movie mm-hmm. came out, we'll get some stats about the movie. It did a $1.14 billion gross at the box office when this hit it was only the second film in history to gross over a billion dollars now it's kind of expected for huge blockbusters to make this type of money but when this came out this was only the second film to gross over a billion dollars zach can you guess that's insane can you guess which film was the only other one to gross over a billion dollars at this time titanic obviously right the the easy one the movie that just did so well, inexplicably well. Um, yeah, people who probably <laughs> yeah. didn't read inexplicably the, well <laughs> didn't read the plot line. They're just like, I want to see this old boat sink, <laughs> <laughs> sink it down, James. Sink so, yeah. it down. Take it to the down, bottom man. of the ocean. I just want to <laughs> see this old boat sink. <laughs> oh man. So. Look at some of the Metacritic stuff, all right? This is this mm. is where where you know we got some oh, good yeah. stats. The critics This is a rarity. Yeah. Critics 94%. Uh Metacritic must see. Anything above an 80 is a Metacritic must see. The users mm-hmm. 9.1. So everyone across the board is like, yeah, this is a good movie. It's a little long, yeah. a lot <laughs> of endings. It takes a while. You know, you you might you know, probably better watched at home because you can hit the pause button and go to the bathroom. But I mean, seeing this thing in the theater was an experience. Rotten Tomatoes, ninety-three percent of people said that this is ninety-three percent of critics said this is definitely worth your overpriced popcorn and mm-hmm. all your treats. And yep. then the user score is slightly lower, eighty-six percent. Uh, I think that part of that could be mm-hmm. the movie was really long at the end, like. The yeah. ring is destroyed, and there's still 40 minutes left to go in the movie. Like, this is a lot of time. So, <laughs> yeah. And then on IMDb, this has an 8.9 out of 10, and this ranks it as the number seven movie of all time, which is pretty crazy. Now, mm. we have to do some history and fun facts about how in the world was this hugely successful franchise turned into a movie. And it all goes back to 1967. In 1967, rumor has it that J.R.R. Tolkien needed money to pay a tax bill. So he sold the film rights to the movies in 1967 for £100,000, which was decent money at the time. I think yeah. uh, the, the numbers I saw, as far as what money was worth in 2015, it would have been worth in between like two and three million, I think like two million pounds and like, something like close to 3 million American dollars. So, I mean, it's a good chunk yeah. of change. Like, this is good money. Mm-hmm. And uh, 
He'll be able to pay that tax. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> and it's not like he was getting totally ripped off here. He also did have in the contract that he would get a seven and a half percent royalty on, you know, Middle Earth related, you know, intellectual yeah. property use. So obviously put himself in a pretty good position to have some money and then continue to get paid. However, this was 1967. The movies didn't even start getting made, I think, until like the late 90s, maybe like 97, 98. So nearly mm -hmm. 30 years later before we got the big yeah. on-screen success. And and I don't think I don't think you could have made Lord of the Rings any earlier than when it came out. I, I hmm. maybe maybe a couple years, but to the scope and the scale and the technology they had, like they really pushed everything they had to the limit to make this yeah. movie. Um, now, I gotta say some sad stuff about Lord of the Rings because Christopher Tolkien, the son of J.R.R. Tolkien, who was the editor behind getting us the Silmarillion, Unfinished Tales, Baron and Luthien, Fall of Gondolin, The Children of Huron, a lot of the like posthumous J.R.R. Tolkien work. Christopher Tolkien's worked really hard to put those together. And mm. nobody loves Middle Earth more than Christopher Tolkien, right? Because he's talked about like these are the stories my dad told me when I was a little kid. I remember being nine years old and him reading to me his first manuscripts, things like that. So there's an emotional oh, wow. connection with Lord of the Rings that nobody but his family members could have, right? Mm. And in an interview with Le Monde, a uh, Par uh, a not Paris, a French, a French <laughs> magazine, he talked a little bit about his thoughts on Lord of the Rings. And here are some of what he says. They eviscerated the book by making it an action movie for young people aged 15 to 25. Christopher Nolkin no. said of Lord of the Rings, revealing, <clears throat> revealing he turned, and then he revealed he turned down an invitation to meet Jackson, and this oh was gosh. because they were trying to work with him to get a deal done for the Hobbit because they were in the midst of like a legal battle. Because rumor has it that New Line, the people who ended up making the Lord of the Rings films, cheated the Tolkien's out of anywhere between eighty and ninety million dollars, and. This suit got settled, which basically means New Line wanted to put it away, or, you know, a lot of times it means admitting guilt mm. as well. But, uh, yeah. But he also made a comment about The Hobbit. It says, seems that The Hobbit will be the same kind of film. And he wasn't wrong. The Hobbit was very much not, yeah. not the spirit of Tolkien, I wouldn't say. There's a lot of cool things about The Hobbit trilogy. Like, there's some cool things of lore and all of that in there. But as far as the yeah. overall tone, I think Tolkien's tone was lost in The Hobbit, but I don't necessarily think it was in the films as much. Uh, let me read to yeah. you these other things, and then I want to hear what you think about it. Um, mm -hmm. He also said this, Tolkien, referring to his father's work, has become a monster, devoured by his own popularity and absorbed into the absurdity of our time, he pondered. The chasm between the beauty and seriousness of the work and what it has become has overwhelmed me. Which I think is a very interesting comment mm. to make. I think for him, this was always, you know, an intimate tale that he knew the mythology of deeply and 
didn't relate to it as this huge commercialized success. And I think that's kind of what he's trying to convey here. Like what it became is never what anybody imagined it to be, right? Yeah. And um and so the commercialization has reduced the aesthetic and philosophical impact of the creation to nothing. There is only one solution for me to turn my head away. Now, one thing I will have to mention here is Tolkien's mm. religion, being a deeply devout Roman Catholic, and a lot of his worldview was portrayed in his work, right? His his ideas about um, philosophy, religion, how life should be lived is embedded within Lord of the Rings, and basically Christopher Tolkien saying a lot of that has been lost in order to turn these into action movies. And mm. um, basically, for me... I will always be indebted to the commercialization of Lord of the Rings. It's how I got to yeah. know it. It's how I got to fall in love with the world that Tolkien created because these books were written 50 years before I was born, right? There's nothing I can do mm -hmm. about it. I'm sorry, 40 years before I was born. So in some ways, I think that this was a successful thing. But it seems to me that... Um, that wasn't necessarily the dream of the Tolkien family, right? Maybe they didn't want it to be this hugely successful, you know, blockbuster type of property. And and maybe in, to some extent they feel like it's jaded what their father set out to create because there is the reality that people think of Lord of the Rings through the lens of the book or the movie or like me, a little bit of both, and you kind of confuse the two sometimes. Um, mm. So... What do, you, what do you think just about these comments in general? I think a lot of people have kind of taken these to to say that, you know, Christopher Tolkien hates the movies, whereas I think more he's saying, like, these don't necessarily reflect the story that I see Lord of the Rings as. This is, this yeah. is Hollywood's take on my dad's story. This isn't my dad's story. I don't think he's mm -hmm. hating on it, but kind of just showing, like, it's hard for me to watch because it's not how I see it. Yeah. What do you think? Um, I mean, I can see that angle, man. Um, I, I mean, it's kind of like how you and I talk about things on this show. Um, we remember and experience stories and pieces of media or books in a way that resonates with who we are. And for us, that's always going to be the the apex of that experience. That's always going to be the thing we hold in our mind as like, this is why I love for me, like Halo or this is why even though maybe, you know, 20 years later, Halo's like that. That game was terrible compared to like what it's become. Right. And so. In that sense, I can see Christopher Tolkien's point of like, this is how I grew up with it. This is what my father wrote. This is what he envisioned it. He didn't envision it to be a Hollywood movie one day experienced by the entire world mm -hmm. um, and for people to like dress up like orcs. Mm -hmm. Like he ex he wrote it as I wanted to create a language because I love language. I love words. And I wanted to just do my own thing and create that while I was also what well, he was like a professor or something like that. Yeah. So like this was kind of like a hobby for him in a yeah. way. It was. And, yeah, very much. Yeah. So like Lord of the Rings was never meant initially to be like a Star Wars where Star Wars was made thought of 
conceptualized, wrote, directed, and produced to be a Hollywood movie. Right, yeah. Lord of the Rings was not. Lord of the Rings was a hobby, a book written by a guy who just was a nerd with language. And so so setting aside that, I can see Tolkien, Christopher Tolkien's point. And I probably – I do agree with it. I, I would probably would say the same thing if I was in his shoes. And the I problem – go sorry. ahead. I would even say that maybe he, as the son, is probably more defensive of his dad's work than than J.R.R. Tolkien would have been of his own work. Does that make oh, sense? Absolutely. Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. It's it's how we are, like, yeah. defending our dads or whatever. We just irrationally would defend him when they're like, hey, it's cool. Right. But the problem, though, is for the the philosophy and the the – religion or the ideas that J.R.R. Tolkien wanted to, you know, get out to the world or at least he, he wanted them to be discussed enough to write them down Mm -hmm. and to think about them and talk about them. So like for us to experience that, we had to have the commercialization Mm -hmm. of, Lord of the Rings like that had to happen in order for the ideas he wanted to talk about to reach a level that they could be talked about and discussed and wrestled with. So in that point, I do disagree with Christopher Tolkien because you kind of unfortunately it's that necessary evil like you kind of need Hollywood and its greed and it's just kind of like relentless search for a good story story to exploit it and make money off of it. Like that's all Hollywood does. Yeah. But through that, we get to discuss these awesome stories and talk about these ideas and like dissect characters in Lord of the Rings and like discover what goodness is and what friendship is and what loyalty means and what evil is. Like we get to talk about all that now. Um, and if, if he didn't want it commercialized, I guess I would be like, well, like what, was this just for you then? Like, was this mm-hmm. just for the Tolkien family? Is this for close friends to the Tolkien family? Like, who is this for then? Yeah. Um, and we'll never know the answer to that question. Right. But um, I guess, like, I would kind of turn it back and be like, well, I don't understand then the point. If you have all these ideas and it's, it's, it's powerful yeah. enough that I need to tell it in this unique story that basically starts the fantasy genre, mm-hmm. like, then what like I know it's not to make money. I understand that, but I would just question like then what is it for? Right. Like, do you want to talk about them or not? Because yeah. if you do want to talk about them, it kind of has to be commercialized. Mm-hmm. You kind of have to have that mechanism that makes it worldwide. And there was no way Tolkien, when he was younger, was gonna produce this to the world. Mm-hmm. There's just no means. So like yeah. I kind of I'm in the same boat as you, man, where I'm like, I'm kind of indebted to the commercialization of it because that was the only way I was going to find out about it is like I didn't even read the book. I saw the movie before the book. So like. Thank goodness Hollywood took it over. And I don't say that ever. (laughs) Most of the time I would say, why did Hollywood touch that? That was a great like IP. But in this case, they actually did it right. One of the very few times Hollywood does a story right like they nailed it with mm-hmm. the Lord of the Rings trilogy so yeah Absolutely. yeah those are my thoughts 
and, and I think too, you know, like I can to- I could totally understand Christopher Tolkien's thoughts, right? Yeah. Like I I could even see himself feeling like, man, you know what what used to be my dad's childhood stories he would tell me before bed is now like the <laughs> the the internet argument of the day and mm. you know i i'm sure he you know he was pretty old when this happened too christopher tolkien i think he he passed away two years ago and he was in his mid 90s i think so he was an older guy even when the movies came out so yeah you know i, I would also say too like with commercialization this is what i'll say about you know film adaptations even if they totally botch it like it's good for your work to get out there because even as a person who likes to read and I look for things to read, it's still hard to find like mm. a fit, right? Because, yeah, you know, not as many people read. Now, because of YouTube and, you know, Goodreads and other things, you can kind of find stuff better. But at the same time, it's still really hard. Like it's it's hard to find like something that's not been marketed well, right? Or, um, right. Or something that's not hugely popular. And so to take something that's older and turn it into one of the greatest movie trilogies ever made, probably the greatest movie trilogy ever made by some merits, it's probably in between this and Star Wars. Like, yeah. I can't think of two trilogies that have three solid movies all the way through without missing a step, mm. really. Um, yeah. And yeah. so, I mean, it's given... It's given Lord of the Rings a life well beyond either of them, well beyond J.R.R. Mm-hmm. Tolkien, well beyond Christopher Tolkien, probably well beyond their own children, you know? And mm-hmm. and I do want to mention here is Peter Jackson's comments. This is from the appendices. This was in an interview that they did for the appendices of the film. He says this. He says, We didn't want to enter any of our personal baggage, certainly in terms of thematic material, talking about, adding that into the movie. He said, we thought that we should honor Tolkien by putting his message in it. And so upon further research, I found out that Tolkien and Peter Jackson have never met. Um, And I found that to be very interesting. And it's like, I see Peter Jackson from anything I've ever heard. He seems to be completely reverent for the work of Tolkien. Like he, he seemed to love it, right? Like a big fan. And, not your typical, right. not your typical Hollywood director, right? Like this was, uh, this was a guy who was a big fan and small time, small time guy before getting this movie, and so I don't know. I just feel like it's one of those things where you hear like what the Tolkien's think, and then you hear what Peter Jackson says, and I'm sure that the Tolkien's issues are mainly with you know, the big executives of the production companies. You know, right, I mean, right. Peter Jackson has no say in you know, how well the IP is treated. He just Mm -hmm. directs the film. In fact, I would say that we have evidence of Hollywood's meddling being more damaging than good with the Hobbit trilogy because they wanted to be a trilogy because they wanted to make more money, thus thus completely transforming what the Hobbit was. Like, I can only imagine, like, a child who goes and sees the Hobbit films and has that idea of the Hobbit in their head, and then goes and reads the book, and is like, "Wait a minute, this is this is kind of <laughs> yeah. goofy, you know? Where's where's all the fighting? You know, where's yeah. all the action?" And it's like, "Well, that's not the type of tale it was." And Mm-mm. 
you know, back when back, I don't know, I maybe action was just done different in movies when we were kids, but I was I was excited to get like one or two good fight scenes as a kid. Now it's like they got to be constant all the time, every five seconds. But yeah, uh, what do you think about Peter Jackson's comments there? I, I think first of all, anyone who's adapting any work, this should be your philosophy. If you're adapting mm. a work, pay homage to the creator and adapt it well with their messages, not not your own. Don't steal IP for your own ideology. Yeah. Um, but anyway, what do you think? Yeah, no, I just think his. I think his outlook on the material that he was tasked with putting on the screen was the right mindset. Like, I mean, you you saw it in the end product. You saw the care that they took to not just make it a completely Hollywood movie. I mean, it is at times. Yeah. Sure. But for the most part, man, it's very much the books. Like, the yeah. heart and soul of it is yeah. the books. Like, for, I mean, you would imagine if Tolkien was alive when it was getting made, like it would, he would have appreciated the fact that they used live actors and not CGI to like, to, to show you the, the majesty and the magnificence of these armies and this, the, the enormity of like the, the world. And like, I just think that they really did take, especially Peter Jackson, careful, care in keeping the heart and soul of Lord of the Rings alive and not going to those Hollywood tropes that are sometimes easier to put in to progress a certain idea or a certain theme. And they, they didn't really need it to progress the plot because it was always there. But like, I mean, you brought it up earlier, Sam discovering the lambless bread on the side of the mountain. Like that was a Hollywood move. And it kind you can kind of feel that when you're watching mm -hmm. it because it's just like, well, that's really convenient that he just right. discovered yeah. the whole ploy. That doesn't really seem in step with how this whole thing has been going. Yeah. Like they don't just kind of randomly discover things. Yeah. Um, but like uh, other than that, I'm just saying like you can tell that that's a, that's an, a one-off mm -hmm. from the, the, the script and the movies as a whole. Yeah. So I, I agree. I think, I think that Peter Jackson, he took the right approach. He took the right heart into it. Yeah. He wanted to be accurate. He wanted to, I mean, he could tell that he was an avid reader of this, that he, he loved it as much as the next fan did. Mm -hmm. And he wanted to honor yeah. that. And I mean, if if this was done poorly, I don't even think we have Christopher Tolkien's comments on it. No. To be honest, like that's the that's kind of the the funny thing in all this is Christopher Tolkien is commenting on this because it was so successful, and it's like, well, isn't this what you wanted it to right. be? Is like the ideas and philosophies discussed, yeah. but if it, if they went the Hollywood route, I don't think we would be talking about this. I'd be like, dude, you remember the Lord of the Rings trilogy? It was so bad. Like, yeah. like, like that's all we would be saying. And Christopher Tolkien then would be going like, nobody wanted to talk about my father's philosophy. It's like they should read the books. And it's like, well, nobody wants to read the books because it's, it's hard to get into. The language is dense at times. And so I have full confidence. A, if the Lord of the Rings trilogy was made today, it would not be good. No, it would be terrible. I mean, we saw that with, I mean, we saw that with Star Wars, unfortunately. My favorite, like, 
they completely botched it. And it's just like now we have all these offshoots of everything. And I mean, Mandalorian's pretty good, but it's just like, how far are we going with yeah. this? Like when does, when does the towel finally get wrung dry of mm-hmm. the IP yeah. here where we go, okay, we got to put this yeah. away, move on to something new. But for, for Peter Jackson, I mean, the dude did everything right. Like he did everything right. So I don't know. Mm-hmm. It's sad, it is sad that they never met and that Peter Jackson couldn't just be like, look, I adored your father's work like this is like I just wish they could have met and just had that conversation. Yeah. But um, but yeah, no, I I, I think Peter Jackson is yeah. a good dude. Yeah, I like him. I think so. and the, the reality is this is a movie that's, you know, 20 years old now going back to Fellowship of the Ring. And yeah, they, it is. It's legitimately still one of the most believable worlds to ever be on a on a screen like it feels yeah. like it's a real place like this feels like all this stuff existed right it just feels so grounded but um let's get into our wrap up here so let's talk yeah. about um we'll kind of close this and talk about was the ending good was it a success did they land the plane well what makes a good ending, and then our our lasting appeal will kind of be, kind of our closing thoughts here. So we'll try and we'll yeah. try and hit that at the end. Uh, and I'll just say really quick, I think the Return of the King is a very special movie because of how much this series resonated with me. How much, mm. you know, it, it's kind of one of those things where as a kid I discovered the type of story that was made for me. Right. Like this is my very specific interest. Right. Like this type of fantasy, mythological storytelling. The characters in the story are very black and white. Right. They are. They're not going to throw too many monkey wrenches in you. There's not going to be too much shock value in it. They're predictable, but their journeys also make sense. And their journeys are ones that you would want to talk about and tell stories about to your own children. And so that's the mm-hmm. type of storytelling I, I really like. It's very classic. It's very, um, you know, kind of feels old. But at the same time, it's the imagination of Lord of the Rings taking us into a mythological place that even though the technology is not as advanced, even though it's not as fancy, um, Hobbiton and the Shire feels like a place like, man, I kind of wish I could go there. And I kind of wish that was the yeah. life I had. It's simple. Yeah. You know, you just like food, like going to the pub with your friends, and every day is a merry day. You sing songs, you till the earth, and that's mm. one of the the things about Tolkien that I know in some ways it's not healthy to be longing for the past, but he does this magnificent thing where he highlights the simple, simple, simple things about life, and it's like, that's what really matters, and... Yeah, that kind of gets me to the comments of I feel like in this journey, Frodo, in some ways, underappreciated, and part of that I think is because of the film's portrayal of him. And I don't want to say Frodo's portrayed poorly, but I feel like at some moments he's kind of like the helpless damsel in distress mm. type. And I mean, he's a hobbit; he's three feet tall. They all are right? They're all kind of (laughs) helpless. Like when you're talking about going up and running from black riders or fighting orcs, they're hobbits. They don't really have a chance. And, Mm. and one of the things I I think just doesn't get talked about, because a lot of people talk about Aragorn. A lot of people talk about Sam. A lot of people talk about Gandalf and they are honestly the more interesting characters to talk about. But 
the very first scene that you see of Frodo in the film and the very first time you're introduced to him in the books, he's a jolly young hobbit who loves nothing more than the Shire. And it's that love yeah. of the Shire that gets him to leave home and go on a life-changing journey to save the home he loves. Now, in the books, it comes back to a very different home, and that's the scouring of the Shire, which we won't get into that. Maybe we'll do like a special conversation on it one time. Um, yeah. But, you know, the sad thing is, is after getting the stab from the Morgul Blade and the you know, just sustaining being under the burden of the ring for so long, Frodo never gets to come back and have the life that he left out to preserve. But other generations do. His friends do. But because of his journey, he doesn't. And to me, it's one of those things where you have the sacrificial hero, the unappreciated sacrificial hero by most people, right? Because in the books, it even members, like most, you know, most hobbits and hobbiton didn't really care about Frodo. Yeah. Like they celebrated Merry and Pippin and their their success in the Battle of uh Bywater. And you know, it's, to me it's very interesting. And I think Frodo's the type of hero who you have and he goes on the journey. I'm sure he doesn't regret it, but the only way to be free from it is to mm. go into the West, go into a different place for basically his life on Middle Earth to be over. Um, and so I think it's sad, uh, but at the same time, like that is sometimes the life of a hero. You go on a journey, you do a difficult task, and you can never really come back home. But you wouldn't change a mm. thing about it. So, And for me, that's why the landing ends. And that's why I love Frodo, even though it's predictable. Um, I think the character ends, even though they're considered more archetypical characters than dynamic characters they all work and they're all mm -hmm. fun and i do think the characters that transform the most are the hobbits probably the only characters that really transform are the hobbits um most everybody yeah. else is kind of you know who you get is what you get um and for me it's just it's nice to watch a ship sail into the West and be like, wow, I just watched some of the greatest cinema of all time. Or mm. when you close that book for the first, for the last time and it's like, wow, that was, that was amazing. You know, mm. <laughs> and you yeah. just get that, that the Lord of the Rings does that for me. I know mm. not everyone loves Lord of the Rings. I know it's not for everybody, but man, a lot of people agreed. So what do you think, man? I, who it's hard to top that man like that's that's uh yeah i think a lot of what you said is why the movie works for me and why the series works for me is you see that change and for me it's always does the character not always get what they want but are they different at the end do they recognize the change that has happened did they sacrifice for something because that's that's life mm -hmm. like it's sacrificing and doing things and then at the end not always having the fairy tale happy ending i mean frodo leaving is not i mean he's leaving the shire the place that he loves the most that's painful and you can see that in that last scene him leaving all his friends and especially when sam like he says goodbye to sam it's like oh gosh um but you see the change you see 
the sacrifice made by these characters. And Aragorn was always one of my favorite characters. Mm-hmm. Um, one of my favorite scenes in the entire series is when he is walking out as king of all men and he sees the hobbits bow to him. And he's like, my friends, you bow to no one. Mm-hmm. Like, that always hits me, it man. Does. Like it's it does. such a good yeah. line. It's a good scene. Like you just know what they've all been through. You know what Aragorn means to them. And for him to say that, like to humble himself, like it's incredible. So, um, yeah, I, I mean, it, the way it lands is so good because the characters change in a way that is satisfying. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you read the books, you get to find out that like Gimli and Legolas become friends and they go on adventures together. And mm-hmm. you're just like, that, that's so cool, yeah. man. Like that they like became friends and they're just kicking it together, yeah. going around the world. Like that's like I, I, things get satisfied in really. I mean, I satisfied in really satisfactory ways that mm-hmm. just like sit well in your heart. Mm-hmm. And so. Yeah, so for me, that is why. The plane lands smoothly and the way it's supposed to because mm-hmm. you go on this journey and you're like you're so exhausted at the end and then the characters get what they worked for so yeah yeah, yeah. and um I, I honestly can say for any younger audience out there i know I've heard that for younger fans of fantasy it's harder to pick up lord of the rings because you know it doesn't have that same Mm. high-paced action focus that a lot of modern fantasy does and i can i can understand that but i don't think you're gonna come across a world that just feels more rich and more thought out than middle earth and lord of the rings and i can honestly say as much as i love the first book i love 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 the first book on an objective standard I do think the third book has the best writing. Like some of the mm. best chapters in all the series are in Return of the King. Yeah. You just you've got to get there. The scouring of the Shire seems a little much at the end. There's like a added battle after all the battles are over and they've traveled home. Yeah. But I think a lot of that's Tolkien's theming which was like you go to war and you know your home isn't necessarily safe. And it gets into like Saruman being the true bad guy, but um, I think the tangents in the mm. story of Lord of the Rings feel appropriate because when we go on a journey or a trip or an adventure or even a vacation, nothing goes as planned. It's not point A to point B. It's mm. kind of like point A to you got point B over here. But it's kind of like you're moving out of diagonal, then you diagonal back to point C, mm. and then you go on another diagonal, and then you find yourself at D, and then eventually you end up at like point H, but it's a, like a squiggly line versus a straight line. Yeah. Um, so, you know, criticisms of Tom Bombadil and Scouring of the Shire and all that, I understand from a storytelling perspective, even Fog on the Barrow Downs, but those <laughs> those make the journey feel more like it could have happened, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. The fact that not everything went so smooth. And uh, I can say, in my opinion, this is the best third installment to a trilogy of all time, both book and film. Um, yeah. And I'm completely confident saying that. Yeah, um, I agree. I agree. So 
Anyway, if you haven't checked it out, please do yourself a favor and check it out. If you haven't checked it out in a long time, refresh yourself because the films live up and I think the books will always live up for anyone who likes fantasy. But uh, that's all I got for us for today. Zach, you got anything else? Go go read Lord of the Rings. Go watch it at least. It's go do it. It's an experience. You have to experience. Absolutely. All right, everybody, have a fantastic day. We'll talk to you next time on Parallel Quest. Bye-bye. Bye.